Oh, listen to an episode of the pod. Oh, God, you guys rabbit on. Broadcasting live from Beef Station. Join us as we rocket through the stars at the speed of sound. I'm Oscar. I took a vow last week <laughs> that I would never do a normal one of these where I just said my dumb name. And I'm up keeping that vow. And I'm Andrew. How you doing? I'm doing great. Are you doing just the dumb dandy. thing as well? Okay, no, you're doing you're doing a normal thing. Dandy. No, I was just quivering with rage. Yeah. <laughs> don't 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 fucking judge me. I'm not after judging you. After you pull that shit, I'm not judging you're you. You're like, oh, dandy, really? That's what you're gonna no, go I with. Just, I was wondering. What was in the pipeline there? It just took a took a while to get back to me. Yeah, and look, I'm, was, a, I'm a little backed up. Okay, you were thinking about thinking about unscrewing that little lid on your your little peach kombucha there. <laughs> if you are, if you know what I'm saying. Which we've discussed this <laughs> off air. Absolutely, the best flavor of kombucha. Absolutely, I, yeah. I just gave some to my housemate to try, and he said it was no good. Mm. Fucking lunatic. I think it's like beer. It's if you're not used to it, when it hits you the first time, you're like, ah, nah. And then you you slowly get used to the bad aspects and they fade into background noise. And then the nice actual peach flip. Like I'd much rather be drinking peach juice, but it's a lot worse for you. Welcome to Booch Station. <laughs> I'm Oscar. This is Andrew. No, Booch um, Station. This week we are going to give you our review of a little Noah Baumbach film from 2017 that went straight to Netflix mm. called The Meyer Wit Stories. Oh, it's got some dumb... Uh, the Meyerowitz stories, brackets, new and selected. But that's this is the it. only version of the film that's ever come out. It's just some dumb fucking subtitle. Um, starring Ben Stiller, Adam Sandler, and a whole host of other huge Dustin actors, Hoffman. including Dustin Hoffman. Uh, we'll dive into that later in the show. So, were you getting that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I, you know, I froze up for a little moment. Cut you I, off. I, I appreciate the setup. I was like, you can't forget Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> and you're like, I was about to say Dustin Hoffman. Uh We'll give you a little spoiler-free review, dive into a few of the things that we liked about that film later in the app. For the moment, though. Actually, no, you know what? Hold up. <laughs> I'm not happy with that, because we just introduced the three male characters in that film, and one of the characters is... Oh, of course, Emma Thompson. Emma Thompson Emma Thompson's in this. does she's a fantastic amazing. fucking job in this film. Well, I think she's absolutely as good as any of the other characters, absolutely. if not better. And she's so good that I almost didn't recognize her. <laughs> right, and she absolutely deserves as high a billing as uh, Adam no, Sandler yeah, absolutely. Ben Stiller. So, and, uh, 100%. Once, once again, perpetuating also, the agenda that we are <laughs> terrible Yeah, I just that. realized, like, because I was like, oh, don't forget Dustin Hoffman, but he has, like, less of a role yeah. than she does, which is very bad of me. So, yes, and, uh, she, she rules in this. She's great. Absolutely. And Elizabeth Marvell as the sister. Grace oh, that's Van right. Patten as Adam Sandler's daughter. Right. We covered it. Who's We're also all good. good. Yeah. She's also great. However, all right. before we dive into the other things we're going to discuss today, we've got a bit of a beefness or pleasure, a bit of <coughs> beefness or pleasure, mm. where we're discussing some of the other little... Uh, Damn, you almost got arrested. Hidden, hidden gems that I saw at the Film and Sound Archive the other week. Uh, we'll dive into a bit of news first, though. Yes, let's do it. Ready? Yep. Beef Bulletin. Okay, first and foremost, honouring our pledge that we keep you up to date with every scrap of information about the new Sonic the Hedgehog (laughs) movie. 
<laughs> Breaking news this week yep. is that they have finally released their new design for Sonic the Hedgehog after it got absolutely roasted when they premiered the Sonic the Hedgehog trailer the first time a few months ago, and Sonic looked absolutely fucked. Just beyond... Beyond what you <laughs> just, could have expected. Just the most insane, uncanny valley looking, like, like human eyes and human teeth. And like, oh man, it was no good. The worst. And you know what I realized in the redesign process is that he had like no eyebrows. I think that's what made him so fucking uncanny. Yeah. Is, is that like he had smaller eyes, but like they gave him eyebrows in this new one and he's so much more expressive. So yeah. like, yeah, I think, I, I reckon maybe that this was like... I don't know. I don't want to get like conspiracy theory on it, but it seems like now that they've had a lot more time to also, I doubt they just changed the design. I think they also put a lot more effort into like animating his facial uh, yeah, expressions I suppose and so, stuff. Yeah. He looked right? crazy. Oh, there's a, there's a little. Uh, there's a side by side. So I'm I'm sure if you're curious, if you're just as emotionally invested as we are, <laughs> you will have seen it by now and obsessed over it. He looks. I'm actually not gonna lie. Genuinely a little bit upset that it looks good now. Uh, yeah, well, it's <laughs> definitely doing... It's fulfilling a different purpose now. Because it would be... Because like the trailer now almost just looks like it's going to be a 6 out of 10 boilerplate, yeah, right. just fine movie. Yeah. And I was really looking forward to it being that, but having the added spice of Sonic just looking absolutely fucked just the whole time. Nightmarish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, it, it almost looked like... A, I feel like we throw this word he around looks a little like, too much, but it looks a little like Cronenberg-y. Yeah. He, he <laughs> looks like if you tried to describe to someone what Sonic the Hedgehog was, and they had to draw it, and then they animated that drawing. the entire film based on that person's interpretive <laughs> yeah. drawing of yeah. what you described Sonic the Hedgehog as. You're like, he's a blue hedgehog. Like, has he got a face like a human? And you're like, yeah. yeah. And they went way too human. <laughs> yeah, right. So, it's, uh, of course, the months ago, so they, they, they said, you know what? I feel like this is an unprecedented move for a company to be like, the internet's right, we're going to change it. Yeah. And they, they gave themselves like an extra few months. This trailer, so Sonic looks good. They've uh, changed the eyes and the, the gloves, and I think they've changed the shoes. They've just made him look a lot more like Sonic. Um, the, a headline that I've found they've here thin- that's going to... down his <laughs> incredibly muscular legs. What do you reckon of this headline? Sonic movie redesign is actually the original design the VFX artists wanted. Yeah, well, a, that, <laughs> yes, that makes total sense. There's, there's, a, there's an art, um, one of the one of the, one of the VFX artists that works on the movie, some dude named Stu, right. <laughs> jumped on Twitter and said, "Pretty much just went back to our original design." Wall. <laughs> <laughs> so this, I mean, it's just one fucking Man. dude. Um, and we don't. It doesn't actually say, or he doesn't go into any further detail about like what made them change it. Like maybe they wanted to sort of like make him really real by make, giving him real eyes and real teeth. But no, at some point they ditched. They ditched the real. At at some point they decided to revise it to what was fucked, and I'm now we don't have the fuck design anymore. Yeah, I'm a little bit sad. Brutal. I hope like as a DVD extra at some point they do release the whole thing with like <laughs> that'd be good. That would be great. Awfully rendered I, Sonic. It'd be so good. Look, yeah. So this is like a little bit. Less than you know how there was that uh, all the money in the world movie that Kevin Spacey was in, and then he got me tooed. Oh and yeah, so they, they had, had to like reshoot, re- reshoot the, yeah. it. Yeah, well, so that was amazing because they reshot the whole thing in like a month, and it was all these huge sets and everything with right. Christopher Plummer as playing because he was That's the main right. character in the movie yeah. or something. Um, but that means that the whole movie exists with Kevin Spacey as the lead. And just as a curiosity yeah. of the uh, filmmaking it, process, I would love to see... It depends on how far they got in the editing process. I think they were done. Right. Yeah, I that's, that's crazy. Or like almost, whatever it was. Like it, they had a, 
they they redid it in like a shockingly short amount of right. time. Right. So maybe yeah, because like you'd still need to do all of the edits and the colorization and stuff. Whatever it is, but yeah. yeah, it must have been almost done. Like they, I think they'd finished filming and everything. Right. Like, and some scenes might look a little dodgy, but yeah. I would love to see side by sides of like. In whether Christopher Plummer like just tried to recreate Kevin Spacey's performance, or whether mm. it was a completely new performance, whether it was like were they the same, you know, did they use the same costumes? Did they lose some of the costumes and have to redo that shit? Like it was the same sets. Like, oh, I would love to see the original one before they redid it with Christopher Plummer. Right. Just just because I'm so curious as to like whether there was anything where they're like, oh, a month ago we had a blue car, we can't get that blue car anymore. Fuck it, the car's red. That's it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, that'd be the coolest game to spot the difference. Yeah, yeah, it would be. Except. <laughs> You have to look at Kevin Spacey for two hours, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. But I'm getting a lot of that now, looking at actors that have been Me Too. To be like, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Like, there was literally, like, a, there was a director. Uh, it doesn't matter. There was a director the other day where, like, I uh, was about to put his movie on, and I thought, like, oh, it's that guy. Yeah. And I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to watch it anymore. Yeah. It was the first time I'd really sort of experienced that. Yeah. It was Brian Singer. There was some old nah, Brian Singer yeah, movie yeah. on it. I thought, like... Oh, no, I feel weird watching that. Right, now. yeah. Um, yeah, I had the same thing with um, American Beauty. I haven't seen it. The main character of American it Beauty, obviously Kevin Spacey. The whole time I was also like, damn, American Beauty used to be like my favorite movie, or at least one yeah. of my favorite movies, and now I just feel really conflicted about it because it's still so good, but it just feels gross now. Well, that's... Yeah. Th- this reminds me exactly of a conversation that I'm going to now rip I mean, it's just Death my, of the Artist, right? My favorite po- podcast of all time is a podcast that I've been listening to for like 10 or 11 years now called Tofop, mm. and it's Will Anderson's podcast with his buddy who's not famous, and they've been just talking shit about Batman and Adam Sandler movies and shit for like 10 years. Um, and I feel like it's one of those things where like... it. I don't know, it's, it's probably impossible to start in on it now, but whatever it is, one of the more recent episodes they yeah. were talking about this. If you're gonna start, I've tried to start go back and apparently listen yeah. to the earlier episodes. Yeah, um, it's a whole thing. The, the point is, there was uh, there was a recent episode where they were talking about this phenomenon where it's like, well, it doesn't seem fair that we have to lose the song Billy Jean just because Michael right. Jackson, just, uh, Michael Jackson, just Michael Jackson's a despicable person, mm. you know? Maybe, and they, so they said, maybe what we should do is, if anyone gets Me Too'd, their works become public domain. Yeah, I, And actually, someone else gets to do it. So for like, some for example, reason I heard this, well, make, but I agree with it, yeah, yeah. They were like, why don't we make Billie Jean public domain? We'll get Bruno Mars to do it. And we'll listen to the Bruno Mars version. And they said, like, for movies like American Beauty... We've got deepfakes now. This could be the first good use of deepfakes. Yeah. Deepfake someone over Kevin Spacey's face. You know? You really could. You, like, if they had to do that all the money in the world movie, th- uh, but, uh, you know, sort of even six months from now rather than like mm. a year or two ago, they could just, they could have just deepfaked, just deepfaked over him, Kevin yeah. Spacey with someone else. Yep. Get a different actor to fly the lines in. Yeah. And isn't that like one of the ultimate punishments is like you put in all the effort right. and someone else just and gets to reap the rewards. Because then we get the art. I've always, it's always been a, mm. it's a weird thing separating art from the artists. Like, I don't know, you know, Chris Brown's an awful person, so I don't want to mm. listen to his music. For people that like that, that music. That's, yeah, that's of, tough. It's always like a rough line as to where you can separate the art from the artist. But I think this is a good example of like, you know, if someone gets me too, fucking deep fake them out of all the shit they've ever done. Well, like, yeah, I don't know. It's a common like trope of like, um, the bad guy in a movie getting killed and then he's like, well, maybe it's not a common thing, but okay. <laughs> Spoilers for Pan's Labyrinth. <laughs> okay. But I feel like this is a common trope of like the bad guy losing their their legacy and their reputation. Because like at the end of Pan's Labyrinth, again, spoilers for Pan's Labyrinth, the colonel... I haven't seen Pan's Labyrinth. Oh, have you not? Okay, I'm not fucking spoiling it. you got to watch <laughs> oh, that movie. Fuck. All right. 
No, no, no. But okay, someone, someone like losing their legacy as their ultimate, like the ultimate loss, because it's someone that yeah. cares a lot about like what their legacy and what their legacy is, yeah. what they're leaving behind. So for for artists, I feel like a lot of the time, stripping them of that legacy, whilst not denying the general public that legacy is important. Like, yeah. we should well, just, yeah, I don't know, like it's, it's, take Michael Jackson's discography and like distribute all of the profits from that to like yeah. homeless people in America. Yeah, well, especially since it's like music that's become such a cultural touchstone right. of society. Like his music, it's like I feel like you can't in, you can't ignore it to some degree. Like there are probably people that got married to his songs. Yeah, people yeah, yeah. that fell in love to his songs, and then to just be like, "Nah, we're going to strip the whole world of it." It's like, oh, well, right. That's Frank's song. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It just what you said reminded me of it. So they went on a whole extended riff about who else could you deep fake out of existence and what would you do about this and this and this and this and this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good yeah. shit. Uh, speaking of CGI deep fakes, faces remaking faces and that sort of thing, that gets me to my next story, Kapow, where um, some studio somewhere probably is a marketing stunt is uh, re- releasing this new Vietnam movie called Finding Jack where they are going to have a starring role played by James Dean, an actor who died Kay. in 1958. So they're going to defake the shit out of it. They're going to like CGI recreate James this Dean. Is, there are going to be movies that are like starring Marilyn Monroe yeah. and like, yeah, Humphrey Bogart and shit. Yeah, crazy. So it says it says here it's going to be a, a film directed by Anton Ernst and Tati, oh God, Golik. <laughs> and they promise a realistic version of James Dean that's going to be recreated from uh, footage and photos and all sorts of like archival stuff of James Dean. It's going to be a full body recreation. Okay. Um, so I look forward to seeing some James Dean yeah. pain. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> fuck yeah. James Pain. <laughs> fuck yeah. James Dean's already the name of a porn star. Or so I've heard. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> Wouldn't know, Matt. <laughs> so he, he missed a real trick there, didn't he? Mm. Um, and that they've apparently obtained permission from the family. That's a different kind of deep um, fake. <laughs> I'd be interested to see how far this technology's coming, though, because when the uh, Peter Cushing got recreated for that Star Wars uh, Rogue One movie. He was that officer on the Death Star. Yeah. He was like, tell them to fire when ready. Um, Pal- Palpatine? No. No, it was no, like, it was like a yeah. second... You'd know his face if you saw yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. He was in the original Star Wars The guy movie, with the deep voice dead. and the gaunt cheeks. Yeah. yeah. Um, they recreated him, but I thought that he kind of looked a bit shit. He looked cartoonish. You could sort of tell. Yeah. And I think that like sometimes they kept him in low light or they sort of had a lot of shots at the back of his head and that kind of thing that did yeah. a bit of the heavy lifting there. But I, I'd be curious to see how far we've come because there are some deep fakes now that look fucking incredible. So mm. I don't know whether that's what this is going to be or whether this is like a completely CGI thing, but it seems like the lighting and the textures is what becomes really difficult there because, I don't know, you got all the skin pores and the little hairs and things. like Right. It seems like it'd be really challenging to do. Because if we, yeah, it, because it really does open up like a whole host of other opportunities for all sorts of other film stars that you could recreate to do this. Yeah, because I I, mean, I feel like a few years ago there was a chocolate ad with Audrey Hepburn in it. Yeah, uh, maybe. And that looked pretty good. I don't know. Curious to see what this is. This comes out in November of 2020, so they're going to start filming okay. very soon and get the whole ball rolling on that one. All right. Uh, how's this? So, during the week, uh, I suppose that we've get everything, the whole ball's getting rolling on 
Oscars nominations and awards and oh, shortlists yeah. and that sort of thing. I guess. So during the week, uh, news came out uh, via Twitter that a Nigerian film that was entered into oh, I uh, saw this, yeah. best foreign language film or best international film uh, called Lionheart. This Nigerian film called Lionheart was disqualified because it's, <laughs> it consists primarily of English dialogue. The The spanner in the works here is that Nigeria's official language is English. This is so... This is like colonialism folding back on itself yeah. eight times. Because yeah. it's like, well, why is the national language English? And also, like, why are you punishing them for that? Yeah, right. Yeah. And so... It's just ridiculous. Like, just make an exception. Yeah. Just fucking let it in. Yeah. Who cares? Because then their rule would have to be, oh, international is any movie not that's filmed not in, made the States. in the States. Or England. Or, or an, Australia. An Anglophone country. Or Canada. Oh, wait. Yeah. <laughs> it's an Anglophone <laughs> so country. At some point, yeah. you have to draw the line, right? Like, would Canadian films count as international yeah. films? Like, would New Zealand films count as international films? And so, I, really, it seems like at the moment, the predominantly, like, the, the predominantly defining characteristic of what people consider to be an international film is like, oh, it's not in English. Yeah. So, then yeah. you have this problem. Yeah. And everyone's like, oh... It's kind of ethnic, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, what it's, can you do? To be th- to be fair, though, it's got mostly black people in it. Yeah, so, right. Yeah, which is like, yeah. I don't know. The whole vibe of this is getting a bit sketchy. Yes, it is. Well, like, here's a, a fucking hot take. I think yeah. they should do Oscars categories purely uh, stratified by the budget of the film. Right. Because it completely rules out, like, I mean, obviously it doesn't take into account, like, the cultural preferences for the Oscars panel, which is still garbage, but um, class is the single unifier, and people with, like, you're going to have the Marvel movies competing with all of the Marvel movies and whatever, so we have, like, the blockbuster category, and then we have, like, the mid-level category, which, like, Joker would probably win this year or something in the sort of... Hundred million oh, to no. Some, twenty million dollar category. Like a no good idea to me. Yeah, and then you've like got like, I mean, you still have to be vetted or whatever. So there's still like a short list, but nah. yeah, I don't know. I I think that there's no like you can't draw a line in the sand based around national boundaries, man. Because yeah, they're well, it's hard, right? Totally arbitrary. Well, because clearly, like, went from this award, this category, I imagine, goes back a fairly long way in history. Mm. And so at some point, this was something where, like, you know, Nigeria's not making movies, so I don't have this problem. Yeah. You know, it's... it's <laughs> and even it if they like, are, we don't care. We don't care. <laughs> right, exactly. So it's like a... I feel like it's... In the modern world, people are only sort of fairly recently sort of waking up to little issues like this that are affecting yeah. artists all over the world. I don't know. I just don't really know what the solution would be because I think the solution would literally... I just told you. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I don't like that. I think the solution would... Because I feel like then you have all the English-speaking and French and German and Israeli and Nigerian films all in the same category and people aren't people are just going to vote for the American ones. You know? Right. Like, I feel like by necessity of their obscurity in like an American... It's like an American awards night I feel like if you had, like, if this movie, this Nigerian movie, had a budget of a million dollars, it's up against eight other movies that are all American, it's never going to win. If it has to be recognized, if it's going to be recognized, it would be recognized in an international category where, like, Mm. in terms of, like, voters that are familiar with all the films, they have a greater... Well, let's make the Oscars voters not just fucking American people. (laughs) (laughs) Make it an international panel. Well, I I feel like you vote if you've won an Oscar, I think. 
Yeah. Well, that's obviously terrible. <laughs> like, it's a catch perpetuating, yeah, perpetuating, right. yeah. Um, I I mean, it just I think the Oscars is just always going to be a little bit garbage. Like you just it's the yeah. it's the thing that's had the most money thrown at it, but if you want other recognition, the problem is it's so good for people's careers. So In this case though, yeah, right. In this case, though, this film has probably gotten a huge amount of publicity based off this. Well, that's good, but and what about other films? Where, I'm sure this isn't the first time this has happened, right? Yeah, so, I, mean, I, I, I don't know. I imagine that you probably time. have a, a similar problem if a movie made in like Hong Kong, for example. Right. It's the first time white people are hearing about it. <laughs> yes. How about we do another story? <laughs> Great stall. <laughs> uh, for the Fantastic Beasts third film. Is oh, yes. currently in production. The third it's, of oh, eight, or whatever the fuck. <laughs> starts shooting next next spring, this American article here says. So, next year sometime, I suppose. Um, it's going to be set in Brazil. So, we don't really know much about it. But that sounds like it's a little bit more of an exciting kind of setting. I know that we were talking before about the idea that I want to see what the rest of the world looks like in this magical, in this magical world, you know. And... The one and two, we we talked about, we did the episodes, the idea that like you couldn't really tell the difference much between like J.K. Rowling's London and J.K. Rowling's Paris. Right. So to have like J.K. Rowling's 1920s Brazil, that sounds fucking yeah. cool. Okay. Like, because you hear all about, like, I think that, I think one of the Weasley twin, one of the Weasley brothers in the Harry Potter books went to Brazil to hunt dragons or something. So oh, like a, yeah. Norwegian like Ridgebacks or something. Some shit. Like, well, yeah, I mean, well. probably not those. But. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, you ever realize someone's dumb <laughs> when you right, say it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, like, oh, no, no, I was no. like, no. What? And then I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Brazilian Ridgebacks. Fuck me, all right? I haven't yeah, read right. the Harry Potter books in a while. Uh, yes, I I don't, I don't know if I'm excited for this because I didn't really like the, the second one that much, but I'm hoping this might be a little bit more of a return to form. I don't know. They're clearly going to make fucking seven of them, so they've got, they yeah. got plenty of chances to get this right. My issue is, and we talked about it when we talked about the, the things, it seems like they sort of changed Newt Scamander's character a lot and yep. it sort of became the Dumbledore show. Yes. And I want this to be... Less of that and more of this. It will not be. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> looking Next headline. It. Next headline. Okay, so what do you reckon about this? So, one of the most controversial edits and revisions to a film in cinematic history. Can you think off the top of your head what this might be? A hugely popular... Blade Runner. Okay, right. So, I, I suppose this isn't Apocalypse like a, a, a redone... A redone a remaster of a film or Oscar's whatever. Oscar's like putting up his shut hand up, being like, fuck up for fucking stop. Yeah. <laughs> You're on the wrong track. It's like one of the most famous examples of like a specific scene Oh, being Han, Han shooting first. Han shooting first, yeah. right. Headline here is George Lucas... A threat conning, yeah. So George Lucas has changed Han Solo's scene with Greedo again. Uh, well, that's... Is he returning it to its original state? Because he fucking retconned it for a... Blu-ray box set or something. Yeah, so it originally it was so the Han shot first thing changed in was changed in 1997. This article on the Verge yeah. here says so that would have been I don't know whenever it was released. For so VHS in or the the backstory to this is like in the original I think it's A New Hope. Yeah. Han shoots Han Greedo. Is, Han is meeting a bounty hunter in a bar and shoots him under the table completely unprovoked. Uh, I'm aware that like probably 50 percent of people, people listening are losing this, right. their mind, but the other 50 percent will be totally lost. Right, Han Solo. 
is being chased by these bounty hunters. He's casually meeting and having a polite conversation with one a guy in a bar, it's and like he parlaying. sneaks a gun under the table and shoots him in the gut. Yeah, and the bounty hunter dies. And it's like a dog move, but it's supposed to show that like Han Solo is a badass. He doesn't care. He's yeah. got corrupt morals. In 1997, George Lucas changed that scene so that Greedo fires off a shot that misses and Han fires back in self-defense. Yeah, so Han's not the bad guy. Han's not the bad guy. Which is guy. obviously changing the his character, his character completely. Yeah. yeah, right. Um, so the news here is that when A New Hope comes to Disney+, Plus, it's going to have a new edit again. <laughs> Great. It's... um. This is just Disney said that it was changed prior to changed again prior to the whole Disney Star Wars acquisition, but still. All right, so I'm just gonna have to read straight from the article here because it's kind of confusing. Right in the newly edited <laughs> okay. scene, Greedo says something else to Han before Greedo shoots, and then Han shoots back. This is then followed by, quote, a new explosion that covers a transition from them shooting to Greedo hitting the table, removing the Greedo dummy body altogether. What? The account also discovered, while scrubbing through the footage, that it appears that the timing of the shooting has been adjusted further, and they now shoot on the same frame. Oh, fuck off. It's possible that these changes are made to improve the pacing of the scene, since it's different from what was originally used over the years, multiple edits. Centrists are the fucking worst people on the planet, dude. I just dude. don't understand. They're so the worst people on the fucking planet. No, no one's the bad guy. Yeah. No. <laughs> Han was the bad guy. Yeah. This sucks, well, man. If anything, if anything, though, if Han's being chased by these bounty hunters... It's he, understandable. He can, sh- he can shoot first. Yeah. Even if... Oh. It's understandable. Oh, it's bullshit. This isn't going to become that's a Han fucking, shot first podcast. That's fucking bullshit. It is a bit it's of bullshit. bullshit. George Lucas has been photographed wearing a Han shot first shirt in public. Really? Yeah. And I was <laughs> like, oh, stupid. cool. He's the guy's the got a good sense of humor change. about it. Yeah. But it was after he retconned it multiple times. Mm. And so he was clearly like having a go on himself. But to f- keep fucking with it, like just restore the original footage, you garbage pile. Ah, oh, you, you shithead! Know, here's something that Fuck I didn't. It know probably about. it probably wasn't even him. It's probably yeah. Disney. No, I, it was him. He's a, he's a freak he's, about it. Well, yeah, maybe, but I thought um, he stopped being a freak about no, it. No, he's he's a fucking lunatic. I'm with you. There is this is something that I didn't know, and I think it's surprising. Um, mm. I found out about it when I went on like a big like Star Wars edits uh, rabbit hole. Yeah, <laughs> which ago. is such a rabbit hole. Yeah, Jabba. The, there's a scene in the first Star Wars movie, so in A New Hope. Um, already, wa- <laughs> already been like, shut up. <laughs> yeah, uh, where Han Solo is talking to Jabba the Hutt, who's standing like outside his ship. Yep, and then they sort of like run past him and get on the ship and fly away. And Jabba's like, "No, I'll get you." Um, but in the original theatrical version, Jabba the Hutt's not a giant worm. Right, Jabba the Hutt's a short Scottish dude. <laughs> That's yeah. funny as Jabba the Hutt's like a dude. And then later on, where they were like, oh, I want to make Jabba the Hutt a worm, right. they went back and like made him a worm. Wow. Yeah. There you go. And so then there's a bit where... Um, I, I think this is right. Maybe I've been like conned by the internet. But so then Hopefully. like there's a bit where Han Solo walks behind Jabba the Hutt where now it looks like 
he's been edited because he used to just be walking behind a man. Right. Now he's, now he's and walking now he has behind to walk this giant worm. A much larger circumference. And so he's been <laughs> edited to move up and down when he's stepping over Jabba's tail. Oh, it's right. It's this weird fucking... Okay. There are so many little edits where like... That's funny. They've, he's CG'd in big creatures to that walk across frame to cover like something dodgy. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've seen that. All yeah. sorts of stupid Oh, shit. from those edits. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. He, as soon as he learned that like visual effects were a thing, his oh, it just ruined his career. <laughs> way too early as well. Yeah. Um, I've got I've got a few. I've got one more thing here about the James Bond movie. <laughs> Great. Uh, but it's 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 just really um. Daniel Craig did some interview recently where they were trying to get him to sort of be like, oh, so what, is it like an equality hire getting Phoebe Waller-Bridge on to do the writing or what? And he said, like, no. no, she's a fucking great writer. That's why we got her fuck on. Off. No, I know what you're getting at and fuck you. She's yeah, a great good. writer. Um, yeah, and then connecting with that story, there was another story here where uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge herself was asked about the kind of writing she was doing and about like, oh, did they get you on? Because they were like, you know, completely up in arms about what the fuck they were going to do all this Me Too stuff. And she said like, no, no, they were already fixing that up themselves and they right. got me in because she said, you're a good, they said, you're a good writer, Phoebe. How about you touch up some of these scenes and you can do some dialogue here. I don't know. It's cool that they're getting her in. She is a great writer and she's done a whole bunch of like action writing and comedy writing and so it seems yeah. like it's a great fit. That's all the news I've got for today. Okay. Cool. What are we doing now? We decided on a very specific order and now- Movies. Movies. Okay, right. So, diving into the movie we did today, mm. the Meyerwitz story. We got two. We do have two. We have yeah, two. Right. Okay. Um, well, the first one we're going to do is the Meyerwitz stories we mentioned at the top of the show. It's a movie that came out in 2017, directed by <laughs> uh, indie drama darling Noah Baumbach, who I knew from his film The Squid and the Whale. I haven't seen any of his other stuff. Um, they're very similar in tone right. to what this was. So, I saw The Squid and the Whale in 2005. I don't remember why I watched it. It was some something stupid, like an indie band name was inspired by this fucking right, movie right, or whatever. Right. Um, but more recently... <laughs> that sounds like you. Yeah. More, more recently, one of the more famous films that he released is called Francis Ha. Okay. Um, he's, also, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. he's also Wes Anderson's co-writer. So he co-wrote with Wes Anderson on The Life Aquatic and Fantastic Mr. Fox amongst others, I think, or maybe those are the only two, but he's, he's, he's worked with Wes Anderson before, so he's done a whole bunch of stuff that people are probably familiar with. Yep. Uh, this is one of his more recent films, one of his most, most recent films. 2017, I think. Yeah. Um, basically, it's set in the modern day, it's about this dysfunctional family. Dustin Hoffman is the father, he's married to his second wife, played by Emma Thompson yep. as this like quirky artist American type lady. They live in a beautiful house in Brooklyn or something, in Manhattan somewhere, somewhere in New York, and they have three kids, I think, played by Adam Sandler, Ben Stiller, and Elizabeth Marvel as the, the Dustin Hoffman's two sons and a daughter. I think one of them is a, a kid from a different marriage. Uh, Dustin Hoffman, one of the main cruxes of the, the idea of the film is that Dustin Hoffman is getting older and getting sicker and getting more frail and the kids are all in town to sort of see each other for Thanksgiving or something. I think uh, one of the main cruxes of the plot is that they're all sort of vying for their father's pride and attention. And Dustin Hoffman is very vocally much more proud of 
Ben Stiller's achievements and accomplishments as a child than he ever has been proud of Adam Sandler or Elizabeth Marvell's right. performances as adults. Um, Adam Sandler's the main character, I feel like, really, in the film, and it's one of his lesser, lesser appreciated but brilliant, I think, dramatic roles. Yeah. And the whole film is basically like a small-scale family drama. Um, there's a lot of fast-talking, complicated dialogue. It sort of doesn't it doesn't quite remind me of Aaron Sorkin, but it almost does in that sort of very wordy, dialogue-heavy kind of way. Yeah, it's a talking movie. It's like it's funny and it's complicated and it's it's dramatic all in one. Yeah, because if you if you like what happens, it's a little like nothing. <laughs> yeah, it's very it's yeah. I feel like it's very relationship and character heavy. Yeah, it's, it's one about of those sort of it's about types. how the dynamics of the families change. And how, like, the ways that a family is shaped when people are young early on sort of bleed through throughout the rest of everyone's life. And there yeah. are things that people hold on to that form their relationships with their siblings and their other family members that they sort of might not even are aware of how much is still affecting them in it the really, present day. Yeah, I feel like everyone's had a, a, a moment like that where they've said something that they don't even remember that they find out like five years later really hurt someone's feelings. You know, yeah. Did you ever get that where yeah. like, someone says like, hey, remember when you said five years ago you didn't really like my shirt? Yeah. Well, that like maybe completely like reinvent the way I dress and you'll be like, fuck, I don't even remember that. Yeah, exactly. But that like so affected and stayed with someone. I think on like a bigger level, that's a lot of what this film was about. Yeah. Right. Where like the father will say something flippantly about Ben Stiller. And Adam Sandler will be obsessive about it, and it'll like change the way he models his whole career yeah. to be more like Ben Stiller. Yeah, and it's never—it's not trying to—it's—it's uh, it's almost asking like philosophical questions of like, is it more important that he said that thing, or that like, is it more—is is the fact that Ben Stiller took that sort of heart more a reflection of Ben Stiller's character or a reflection of Dustin Hoffman's character for saying that? Yeah. It sort of doesn't answer that question. It just shows you that like, in some circumstances, people take things much more seriously or like i said hold on to certain aspects a lot more than anyone else in the world knows that they will do that you know yeah um i think one of the most interesting parts about this film is the way the dialogue's presented there's a nerd writer video essay that <laughs> yeah i watched a little while ago that's how i found out about this film in the first the third place. the third host yeah, of right. this show <laughs> <laughs> where he pointed out the fact that like in this film all the conversations between all the family members, between the father and son and everything, people are constantly talking over each other. Yeah. And there's a great scene, for example, in a diner where Ben Stiller is talking about his new success in his company and Dustin Hoffman is talking about like his sort of struggles as an artist. Yeah. Um, How uh, made, an artist made of his that made it a lot bigger than he is yeah. has an exhibition on. And they're like, they're asking each other questions and never answering them, and they're constantly just both talking about themselves yeah. in this really weird, self-centered, self-involved kind of way, where they're almost not really having a conversation, but they kind of are, yeah. Because one of them will sort of open themselves up, open themselves up with some sort of vulnerability or some sort of issue they're having. Like Ben Stiller might be like, "I'm worried about this," and instead of addressing that, Dustin Hoffman will just like talking about something he's worried about. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's this really weird conversational style that. I, I found quite grating to yes. begin with. Like, yeah. I couldn't quite decide on whether I thought it was like so realistic, man, or whether it was like this is driving me insane. No one talks like right. this. Right. 
I feel like maybe Noah Baumbach's family talked like this. There's this, um, there's this, well, I think it, yeah, it must be slightly exaggerated or else, like, I feel like he would have gone on a murderous rampage because that yeah. is Ooh. maddening. It, it does but, have a very Wes Anderson whimsical kind of tone to it, though. In yeah, a way it that makes do. it feel a little bit larger than life. Or even, like, different, going for a different thing, but like Yorgos Lanthimos, where, like, everyone I, I speaks down, yeah. quite eloquently, but it's, it's, it feels inhuman. Yeah. I wrote that I had a. I wrote on my little notes here that yeah, it, it does. It did remind me a lot of like a the lobster kind of yeah. killing of a sacred deer conversation. Yeah, in many in many places throughout this film because yeah, it's it, bizarre. It's a lot of like no, oh, no one talks like that. That's weird. So the lobster does that where like every single person finishes all of their sentences completely. Yeah, that's a that's Yorgos Lanthimos' shtick that oh, he really backed off on for the fa- uh, not the favorite. Yeah. Which, uh, but yeah, exactly yeah. right. But for this one, there's a lot of like no one answers anyone's questions, no one responds to anything, and I found that as a lot of the characters get closer throughout the film, that sort of dies away a bit, and people become a lot closer. And I feel like that's obviously intentional. Yeah, but yeah. Um, as the characters, like Adam Adam Sandler's character gets a lot more emotionally close to specific characters in the film, and they yeah. sort of stop interrupting each other and like ignoring each other in conversations like that a lot more and it sort of culminates in this one conversation between and I think that's a, one of the major like features of this, this film is that like I think the maybe the main like point of tension in the film is like one actual just conversation between yeah. Adam Sandler and Ben Stiller where they just sort of actually talk to each other almost for the first time in the entire film. Yeah, where they're actually addressing each other yeah, and listening and to what they're saying. Responding to what the other person says and like it ranges wildly from like them being angry at each other to like them opening up and yeah. they're angry about having to open up and yeah, it's very it's it's not something that you could it's not a scene that you could find in any other film that would serve the same purpose, I guess, yeah. as in this one, or even like that you would be able to really achieve without the same build-up. Yeah. Something that I couldn't quite decide on, and I'm curious to hear what you thought about, was whether... Cause a lot of the ways that it just, it depicts like the character relationships and dynamics, I couldn't quite decide on whether it was really hand-fisted or not. If you know what I mean, because like, like the, in the way we're describing it, like where you know Adam Sandler will ask Ben Stiller a question, and in response, Ben Stiller will say something completely different and ask him a question, and then yeah, it's it's kind of infuriating, and it's like, well, I get that you're trying to show me that they're not really emotionally invested in each other, but it kind of yeah, I don't know. I got one other example that I was gonna gonna mention, which is where the father, when the, there's there's several scenes where the father, Dustin Hoffman, and Adam Sandler are sort of just chilling out at home, and the the dad like goes out of his way to show no concern for Adam Sandler's issues at all. Yeah, like there's there's a, there's a almost like un- unbelievably it's, it's callous. Insane. Yeah, right. Like there's a bit where um. The father's an artist and he, he moves in all these art circles and he's gotten a couple tickets from his friend who's got an art exhibition yeah. downtown. And Adam Sandler goes, I love that guy. I've always loved that guy. He's a family friend of ours. I love it when he comes around. I'd love to come to this art exhibition with you tonight. And Dustin Hoffman goes, oh, I can't get you. A, I don't want to get you a ticket. I don't want to bother him, but maybe you can buy a ticket. Yeah. And it's like, oh, fuck you, man. What yeah. do you mean? Like, it's... He, he, he responds in such a way, and there's several moments like that where Dustin Hoffman responds to shit that, like, Adam Sandler's being vulnerable or just in the most insane, like, you know, just won't take his jacket right, and puts his own jacket away type of shit. It's like, only a sociopath would do that. Yeah, and I think that's... The, the more that you learn about these characters, because it's initially like, oh, the father's a bit, like, doddering and kind of, like, stubborn and a bit selfish. The more that you learn about it, 
Um, because like in the, in the first part of the movie, there so Adam Sandler's coming back. He's spending a lot more time with his dad than he has in a while. Yeah. Ben Still is coming back. He's also spending a lot more time, and uh, and it just starts to feel a little bit like. And then eventually Elizabeth Marble comes into the picture as yeah. well. But it starts to feel like you're like, oh, they're just kind of helping their dad out when he needs help with, I guess, like selling their house and moving or something. Yeah, it's a lot of that. Like, one of them is sick and they're all sort of coming out from where they used to live, where they live now, out of town to come back to the family home as like a reuniting kind of thing. Right. But so initially you're like, oh, well, they're just helping out their dad who's like, you know, he's just an old guy. He's like a little bit, yeah, you know how old people are. But then you realize that like that callousness and that like almost sociopathic self-centeredness was something that they always dealt with and sort of hated him for a little bit. And, yeah. and it really did have a profound impact on them and who they are. Um, but they're still, they still feel this like sense of familial connection to him and they still feel obligated to like, not just obligated, they sort of want to help him and want to love him and be loved by him. But, but it's like despite him. Right, and and despite what he's ever sort of shown them, and they sort of end up fully transparently acknowledging, like, well, yeah, he was a pretty shitty father figure for a really long time, and like, yeah. that's still very frustrating. But um, I guess you've just kind of got to either completely alienate yourself from that, or deal with who he is and be around him anyway. Yeah, I I, I suppose my gripe specifically was with how it's like it feels like it's doing that. And it's depicting that through all the scenes of the film, like a little too much, like a hundred and ten percent cartoonishly self-centered. And I, yeah, yeah. And I feel like maybe that's just more to do with the style of the filmmaker and the style of this film specifically. It's a bit absurdist. It is a little, uh, a bit, little, yeah. yeah. It, like it, only, yeah, you're right. Just like just sort of ten or twenty percent absurdist. Yeah, like it's it's what kind of rubbed me the wrong way about. Yorgos Lanthimos's films as well. Right, it's, it's a little bit right, like, yeah, right, right, right. Dude, I get it. Just let me. It like <laughs> yeah. broke me out of. The, it breaks me out of the film a bit when they do it. Yeah. In the same way as this, where it's like, it's almost like fuck you guys talking to each other. I'm trying to hear what's going on. Yeah. Like, Jesus, I get it. Have like a couple scenes where they do that. Don't make it every scene. Yeah. But then I feel like once you get into the swing of things, and once you sort of start to get used to it, as just accept, okay, this is what's happening in this movie. Um. I feel, I feel like it's fine. You don't notice it, but it's just, it's just like a, the first sort of 20 minutes where you're like, oh no, this is driving me insane. And, <laughs> and also like, this is minor spoilers for halfway through the film. Yeah. But um, the first half of the movie is them, particularly Adam Sandler and Ben Stiller dealing with Dustin Hoffman. And the second half of the film, Dustin Hoffman falls ill and is in hospital and it's more about like all the kids dealing the with three each other. siblings. Emma Thompson gets involved, and also uh, yeah, Elizabeth Marvel as well. So the, the, the and it's sort of the three siblings dealing with this annoying mother-in-law figure. And yeah. I found that to be a much more enjoyable dynamic. I thought so, so as well. Maybe that was kind of why the second half is gripping. It's less that like, okay, now we're getting to the payoff. It's a bit of that, but I just think I liked those characters better. Well, yeah, it's that payoff, and there's there's a bit of a. I feel like Adam Adam Sandler's performance for one is brilliant, and I I, re- I really got into it. I thought it was great in in a, in a way where you watch a lot of actors and it feels like they're just playing themselves. Yeah, but I kind of believed it. Like in a, in a way, like I I believed that he was whatever it is, Donny Myrowitz. I think he lent into that absurdist role enough that I I, I saw like parts of his exaggeration in his other like Happy Madison style movies coming through a little too much and so I think that just bugged me a little bit 
in my opinion, like I've never seen Adam Sandler act like this, and it was his best performance that I've ever seen. Yeah. But I think out of all of the cast, for me, he was still like the weakest. Yeah, well, I feel like he's definitely... You don't have to agree if you got a better read on his character than well, I did, but uh, I just no, I felt that way a little bit. Yeah. I agree that he's the weakest, but he's... Dude, like the other actors he's up against are like fucking Ben Stiller, right, right, Dustin right, Hoffman, right. and Emma Thompson. And like, uh, Yeah, sorry, I don't know if this will make it in or not, but we just went down a huge rabbit hole about how I thought Elizabeth Marvel and Alison Jenny are the same person. <laughs> <laughs> and was talking about them for quite a while as such. Oh, man, I- I'm hoping that made it in. A lot of like, what about this movie? Yeah, man, that's Alison Jenny. I'll try to keep it what I can, <laughs> but it was a huge mess because it, it was like my brain broke and I was like, no, she was in this. You're like, that's also Alison Jenny. It's like, I like Alison Janney though. She's oh, okay. great. I agree. And she is who I was talking about. <laughs> Elizabeth Marvel. So, okay. What, what that means is Elizabeth Marvel is also an excellent performer. However, uh, and I, I, really I do feel like she this. inhabited this character. Just so weird and quirky yeah. that I really felt like I'd never really seen another on-screen presence like that. I mean, she was very, she but was, as a character, she was very uncomfortable in the movie. And yeah. I feel like she didn't say much. And as a result, I feel like her performance for me was largely sort of... Her scene where she fully opens up to her brothers... That's a good scene. ...was, in my opinion, the best scene in the movie. Yeah. Um, but... She's barely in it for the rest of it. But you're right. She, I suppose she has the least role out of the, the three siblings. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, okay. Well, I stand by what I said. She does an extremely good job in this. Yeah. Um, but I certainly haven't seen her in a whole lot of... Uh, whole lot of other shit. Oh, she's in House of Cards a bunch. That's probably where I know her from. Yeah, right. And Fargo. Let's not get but, too obsessed about this yeah, Elizabeth okay. Marvel right, thing. Right, there we go. It's possible to be doubling down too hard on the... But she's she is great in House of Cards. She is great in Fargo. Yeah. So Remi- reminded me about reminded me about scenes and different sort of depictions of characters. Uh, the dad is like so disconnected from reality and disconnected from everything. And I feel like part of it is is his dementia, but then a, um, I don't know if it's dementia, whatever the fuck it is he's going through. He's getting old and getting sort of dotty. So part yeah. of it's that. But then a lot of it is also like, uh, he's just such a dick about everything. And it reminds me, God damn. Like yeah. Specifically, there's this bit where they, he finally gets Adam Sandler to come along with him to this art exhibition without being a dick about it. And he insists that they wear tuxes because you yeah. gotta wear tuxes. It's a, tu- it's a black tie event and they rock up and fucking no one is wearing a tuxedo and he doesn't even apologize. Yeah, and what's funny about that is like it's never directly addressed. As they're like shuffling through the crowd, Adam Sandler sort of says this thing of like, I don't see anyone else wearing tuxes. And um, Dustin Hoffman's character says something like, maybe they're here for a different thing. Yeah. Or something like that. <laughs> he just hand waves oh, it away. It drives and, me nuts. Right. And it's never the conflict is never resolved. Never. It just sits there. And, but then this oh, And I, it just kind of like is thrown on top of the pile of things, other things to resent him for. Yeah. And they just do that for the first entire half of the movie. <laughs> that art exhibit scene is really good. There's a lot of people yeah. asking Adam Sandler, like, oh, are you going to the opera after this or something? Like, are you, are you going right. to something else after <laughs> and this? And he's like, no. <laughs> and to be fair, he takes it really well. His character yeah. always has some like little funny quip or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he ends up like bonding in terms of it because like, I think he's single and he ends up kind of like talk, re- reigniting an old flame yeah. because of the whole Tux thing and his reaction to it. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, it's just funny how much they have to, how much they, it's a good way of showing how much they have to deal with the annoying repercussions 
of like following the advice of their father. Yeah, I think I think part of that you you talking about him talking to this like romantic interest, old flame, whatever, reminded me of the fact that the dialogue he has between her is so easy and yeah. so relaxed and it's like a breath of fresh air whenever he's talking to someone that's not in his family in a way that almost makes me feel anxious when he is talking to his family and so it does a good yeah. job of like almost making you like sympathetically anxious and like infuriated every single time he's with his family yeah and so then as it gets better and better and the relationships improve throughout the film because like the the dad's like <laughs> incapable of speaking anymore um it does a great job of like yeah, making making everything feel a lot more relaxed, and so I suppose there's that emotional payoff, but it doesn't change the fact that it's fucking infuriating. Yeah, it does this really great thing where the stories are all told in chapters that are sort of yeah, that's right disconnected, <laughs> but then the ends of all the chapters cut off Adam Sandler. <laughs> Sorry, mid-sentence. I just remembered about Mister Pagina, uh, uh, pa- the Pagina, P- Captain Pagina Man. Captain, I think it is. Yeah, where he's got a uh, no, it's just Pagina Man, it's a superhero with a penis fuck. and a vagina that can fuck whenever they want. Sorry, that's just going to ring through my head for like <laughs> the next half an hour. Yeah. I don't know why. You said the word chapters and I was like, yes, one of the chapters had Pagina Man yeah, in it. it. <laughs> I was it did, just like, yeah. that's all I can think about now. Yeah. Well, <laughs> my favorite joke in the whole film was how there were these constant edits that would cut off the ends of scenes. Often like a- actually in the middle of a sentence middle of a or sentence. whatever. Yeah. yeah, right. And then like, but so I feel like on the one hand they did a great job of emphasizing how little anyone actually listens and how inconsequential all of these conversations they have like, actually yeah, are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it'll just be like, you know, this scene, the scene in which they have a family Thanksgiving or whatever. And then it'll have that scene and then it'll just cut off in the middle of a sentence. And you're like, oh, and it'll be like, the next scene, six months later or whatever. Um, but that all culminates in like, I don't know, there's one scene very specifically where you want to know what they're saying and it cuts that off (laughs) mid-sentence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where you're like, oh, come on! Which, like, this movie really, like, it's actually very funny, but not on the surface. It's funny in the way of, like, like watching Adam Sandler deal with everyone continually asking him why he's wearing a tux. Yeah. Or, like... Um, in, in, in a very relatable kind of way, but also in like yeah. a, thank fuck, I don't have to deal with that. The opening of my, the film is one of the funniest and I think best scenes in the whole film where it's just Adam Sandler trying to look for a car park for like five minutes. <laughs> right. No. He's driving around. <laughs> yeah. And it's actually that he's trying to have a conversation with his daughter yeah. and they keep bouncing back and forth between like his anger management issues and her like talking about what she wants to do. Yeah. And then like, ah, oh, fuck you. Fuck you. Yeah. That was my car park kind of shit. My favorite in the whole film was him being like, when he finds out that his dad's going to sell the, oh, the, I think the funniest moment in the whole movie is when he finds out that like his dad's going to sell the house and all his art. And he's like, I love this house. I grew up in this house. And they're just like, you lived here for like a year. And he's <laughs> like, yeah, but I feel like I grew up here. <laughs> and they're just like, yeah, why do you care so much? And he's like, I don't know. And yeah. then it just like kind of moves on. It's great. Yeah. Um because people do feel funny about things like that. And that but that becomes like the that becomes like the crux of the whole movie. Right. It's the theme of like why do you care so much? I don't know. I just care. Yeah, it, I just kind of do. And it's just yeah. people dealing with that shit. Like um yeah. And eventually like you you can make someone come up with a reason, but the reason might not make much sense because it's more something that they've kind of like that sat inside them and kind of like morphed and changed as they've grown, but they've yeah. kind of got their own ideas about what happened. Like the, um, the, the, the thing about 
Ben Stiller, whether or not he was disappointed in Adam Sandler for giving up piano or not, you know? And it's yeah. kind of like, well, do, uh, do they actually still carry, put any weight in that? Maybe, maybe it's not. Like, why do you care what your brother thought about you learning piano when you were 10? Right. But but when you little push someone, little things. When you push someone to the point where they have to justify their actions, yeah. they're going to be able to do it, but it might not actually be the way that they feel about <laughs> it. It might just be like what, yeah. what they think of at that moment. So, yeah. yeah, it's very good at that type of thing where it's like humans aren't always going to have a, like, I, I suppose it's just highlighting the dumb irrationality of people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think maybe yeah. I think overall I liked this movie, but a lot of the dumb irrationality was driving me fucking crazy. It's intentionally aggravating yeah. for sure. It's not like the movie isn't aware that it's doing that. It just was working, I think. Yeah. yeah. I, I think by means of a sort of better than worse fan, which I haven't quite Ooh, formulated, yeah. but That's I went tough. I went in and watched Punch Drunk Love um after we watched the Mayowitz stories. Is that another Baumbach movie? It's no no, it's another movie another that Adam is well movie. known because it's a serious dramatic Adam Sandler performance. Right. It's done by the guy who did um uh the oil movie, Paul Thomas Anderson. Oh right. <laughs> it's a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. You forget the name of that movie every time. <laughs> Fuck. Um and it's um There will be blood. <laughs> but and and this sort of, that's another great example. The Punch Drug Glove is another one where like the dialogue and the ca- the way the characters play off each other is fucking infuriating right. <laughs> and it's deliberate like so Adam Sandler plays this dude with like severe social anxiety but it means that all the scenes okay. play out in these really aggravating ways where right. like he's not he's not dealing with the situation like a rational person would and he's got a family in Punch Drunk Love his sisters are like constantly yelling at him and like why are you doing this why are you doing this why are you doing this in this like uh Hyper exaggerated way, right? No one else in the film. Maybe when I kept saying the relationships get better throughout the film and it becomes more soothing, I was thinking of Punch Drunk Love. Sorry, right? Because they're they're quite related. And I mean, I think it applies to both. Confused yeah. in my head, where like every single time Adam Sandler's character in Punch Drunk Love talks to his family, it's the most anxious, nerve-inducing conversation that's deliberately like hyper exaggerated in the way in which the characters and his sisters like like push his buttons. And right. then no other characters in the film do that, so it's almost like he's like, "I'm not, I'm not myself when, when I'm with talking." My right, right, and right, right. So right. then, the more the film goes on, and the more he sort of improves, and that does seem quite similar. Yeah, it, it is kind of similar, and I think that Punch Drunk Love just does it in a way that's like a little bit more surreal than is in, to my taste. Okay, where like it's just like. Maybe it's that I have enough problems like with anxious anxious situations in my own life. Where <laughs> Empathize too much. I don't need a film that just is trying to make me anxious. Yeah, but yeah, it's um. And yeah, I, I don't know. Another example of a film where it's like, God, that was well done, but fuck, I don't think I enjoyed it's like, that. You know that movie problem where it's like a criticism, it's like a famous criticism of scripts where it's a, your movie is a shitty movie if uh, the problem, the complication in your film could be solved by two characters having an honest, simple conversation with each yeah. other. It's These films like create situations where that is the case, but they are having a conversation with each other. It's yeah. just that they can't fucking communicate properly yeah and so you're sitting there being like all you have to do is talk to each other but they're talking to each other so you're yeah. like no you have to be better at talking to each other and <laughs> like, so I, yeah right I li- <laughs> the solution yeah. is like have better communication skills <laughs> it's like a very complex problem so yeah. you're sitting there yelling you're like no you don't understand because you're not able to empathize with her perspective but she doesn't have the emotional <laughs> intelligence to understand the pressure that's placing on you yeah right I like this that. This is so stressful. Yeah. yeah. It's the Myra's... Yeah, so Punch Drunk Glove was definitely quite stressful in part for that reason. <laughs> right. The Myra's stories, I think, is a lot more of a, pal- a palatable approach to that. Where yeah. Like, it's yeah. more funny 
and subdued. It is, yeah, it is almost like a critical analysis of that that approach to like sitcoms, right? Where it's like, well, let's write characters that can't possibly properly communicate with uh, each right. other, and just let that play out. Yeah, yeah. The 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 scene where Ben they're at a restaurant and like Ben Stiller, um, he's talking about his business, <laughs> yeah. just all of it, and like the culmination in the dude taking Dustin Hoffman's jacket. But, like, the idea that, like, Dustin Hoffman is spending so much time stressing about what he's going to eat and being so finicky. Yeah. And, like, being so picky about how expensive things are to the point where Ben still is finally just like, what does it matter? I'm fucking paying for the food. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's it's great. That. It's great. Oh, man. Yeah, I liked it a lot. Uh, I don't know if I have, like, a better than, worse than of movies that like, characters sort of struggle to communicate in. Yeah. I, I did, we mentioned, or maybe, I don't know if this will make it into the cut or not, but back <laughs> when I was having my fucking Space Odyssey, um, Juno is a film that feels, that carries, I, f- I think, a fair bit of that, like, naturalist conversation. Yeah. The way that Ellen Page and Michael Sarah kind of talk to each other and sometimes they'll say something and it'll, I mean, that's a little, that fits in a little more into that, like, Michael Sarah sort of Scott Pilgrimish. Uh, film yeah. style, like dialogue style, where they're just sort of like saying rapid things back and forth to each other. So the conversation topic changes really frequently, but it's not so much that one character is ignoring the other character or anything. I suppose. So yeah, I don't know. It yeah. in terms of like, I'm just trying to think of like movies with like hyper naturalistic dialogue. Well, I feel like the problem is it's not naturalistic dialogue. When you notice it like that, I think it's right. not. Or maybe it's. See, it's hard to tell whether it's noticeable because it's not typically what's in a movie, or whether it's noticeable because it's unnatural itself you know like maybe it's just unnatural for a Hollywood world I, I think, think it yeah I, I think that I think Juno and Scott Pilgrim are very rapid fire dialogue type films that aren't very realistic I it's agree like, it's, it's, all, it's like watching this thing where everyone is, everyone has the funniest line to say all the I time I think Meyerowitz is more realistic well, in terms of, of its dialogue. Well, in terms of that like noticeable dialogue that it isn't that realistic. I think that's kind of what reminded me of The West Wing a lot. Where The West Wing is famous for like it's almost like impressionism but for script. script Every writing, line you know I mean. is a crafted thing that yeah. someone could never come up with on that yeah, in that exactly. amount of time. And then the whole right. piece is like it's like that's, that's not the point. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like in the same way as this like the whole it's not the, it, I don't think the dialogue is very realistic. I think yeah. that maybe it's an accurate representation of the general emotions that people feel when they're communicating with their family. Right. And I think that to flare up that emotion in the two hours of you watching it, it has to turn up the dial like 10%. Right. And I think I, th- I think that's where I'm at with it, is that it's like, yeah, this makes yeah, me okay. feel the anxiety that I feel sometimes in like those big, I don't know, not that I have an issue talking to my family, but like I feel like... It makes me feel those anxious emotions that you hear about with these big family gatherings in like a little two-hour concentrated period, which is almost like a magic trick. Yeah, uh, and the way it does that he's, is by he's like distilled. It a bit. He's distilled an essence of something. Yeah, right. Exactly. But right. if you look at the individual parts, I think the individual parts you'd be like, "Well, that's not how that works, and that's not how that works." Yeah, that I works. suppose. I don't know. I uh, also like having grown up in a like loud Italian family. I've had lots of this shit that cross talk yeah, okay. where yeah, like someone just is going on about something, and you're like, "What? We've moved on from that. We're trying to talk about something else now. You just won't shut up about the thing. Shut <laughs> up about the thing, okay? Sorry, I missed yeah, what you were saying. What were you saying? And then someone's like, "Pass the salad the whole time." Right. And you're like, "I, I, I'll pass you the salad for fuck's sake." Yeah, yeah. So I empathize with that a little bit. I think there's from what I've like, yeah. 
I don't pretend to know like Jewish culture or Jewish American culture, but like I think uh, there's I, I've I've understood a lot of similarities of like the family dynamics in that of just like yeah. people being loud, people being very like hyper animated, <laughs> and then like transferring that out of that situation. People like whoa, calm down. You're like I am calm. Why would I not be calm? I'm calm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. So yeah, I liked that aspect of it, and I guess maybe that's why I don't know. I feel that it's a little, it was a little more believable because I'm like I've almost heard my family talk to each other. Yeah, like okay, no, I, had, I hadn't experienced much. Right. Of it yeah. I um I enjoyed it though. I think it's I think it's worth going in on. You yeah. just have to set yourself up for a bit of a roller coaster. So it's on ride. Netflix. It's on Netflix. Yep. Yes. Pretty um, easy to go. I think yeah. so. Yeah. Uh, should we? I've got a little oh, uh, bit yeah. on what? No, no. I've got a little bit on Terminator. Oh, okay. I was going to say like. Yeah, just in terms of spoilers, I also think that the way that it reflected the... So, like, spoilers, the way that um, Elizabeth Marvel's reveal when uh, the Dustin Hoffman's mate shows up to visit him, in visit him at the hospital and she just, like, piss bolts and they're like, what the fuck happened? There were some really odd choices in... Actually, this is more about what, what my point is about, but there were some really odd choices in cinematography in the movie. Right. Because it would have shots where, like, it would be, I don't know, it would just be sort of doing something. And you'd be like, I've seen this mood in films before, but I've never seen them approached in this way. Like, one style of that is that, yeah, after uh, Elizabeth Marvel, like, piss bolts away from this dude, uh, Adam Sandler and um, Ben Stiller, like, chase her, and she's, like, run into the forest. And so they kind of, like, chase her into the forest, and they're like, what the fuck? And she's leaning against a tree... And she just sort of tells this story quite in, in like her, the same way that she talks all the time about how that dude like followed her into a bathroom and like jerked off nearby and um, like sexually basically assaulted sexually her. assaulted her. Yeah. And like yeah, when she was uh, 12 or something. Yeah. Very messed up. In and a like very that, like deadpan kind of way. Right. And the two brothers are just like, that's incredibly fucked up. And they don't know how to deal with it. It's funny the way that they deal with it. But the moment when she's ta- telling that story, it's one continuous take. And it's like the camera is watching from a really long way away. So they're using like a telephoto lens, which is like a big zoom lens. So the cameraman's actually fucking heaps far away. And it slowly zooms in on her while she's telling this story. Like, often zooming in on a subject is a good way to build tension, but because the camera is so far away, it's not a close-up or anything, and it's quite grainy. It's, like, clearly a zoom lens. (laughs) It was just a really strange thing to watch, and it did make me feel like the cameraman has been, like, I don't know, this here's my film studies bullshit, but, like... like observing from afar or something? Right, because even when you're slowly getting let into this person's most... Because this never happens with the brother characters. Yeah. And she is so deadpan and emotionally cut off from everyone, partially right. as a result of like her the, her relationship with her father, that even when you're getting the most intimate view that you will ever get and the she is the most vulnerable that she'll ever be in the film... You're still way far away. You are from so her. far away. And even as like the zoom actually kind of represents you being let closer to her, but you still have so much ground to cover. And like the brothers are near her, like within frame. So they're kind of like, they get this privy to her emotional state and kind of like understand and, and uh, for the first time yeah. kind of sympathetic. But even so, like you as the viewer are so distant and so far away. I thought it was just a really interesting choice to like, yeah, capture that sense of isolation. And it's one of those ways where I feel like the emotion of the camera 
is really like often people say like, oh yeah, it doesn't really matter though. But this had a, quite an impact because you feel like you're watching her from a distance. And if you were part of that conversation, you wouldn't be at a distance. You would be right next to her. So it kind of forces you to feel distant from her, even though you're hearing what she's saying, yeah. which was like a really clever thing. And there's more of that. I didn't, uh, unfortunately, I, I forgot to make a note of where else I saw that. But there were a few times when I felt like he was doing that type of thing. And maybe it was the cinematographer's choice, but um, he, yeah. yeah, just where choices like that were made that that had an interesting emotional connection to what was going on. In that the is film. really interesting. Yeah, Terminator Two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So I got a little bit of stuff on Terminator and Terminator Two because we had a double feature shown at the Film and Sound Archive. Yeah, here in yeah, 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 yeah. A week or two ago, and now, and I'd never seen either of them. And so I figured, oh, well, go and see him on the big screen. The Terminator... I bullied you into it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, the, you're fucking... You're not doing anything that night. You're going yeah. and seeing two Terminator <laughs> movies. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, I'll give like a quick hot take, I think. Okay. Um, my, vague, my hot take was that I think Terminator 1, I enjoyed a lot more than Terminator 2. Whoa. Yeah. I think Damn, and I think that re- is a hot fucking take. Yeah, so I think the reason for that is so first of all, yes, watching Terminator 2, it's like a perfectly polished, looks like it was made today action movie. Right. It looks incredible, it's perfectly crystal clear, all the effects look real, all that shit. Like the mirror the only thing that's even like kind of questionable is like the Quicksilver mirror liquid metal terminator. The T one thousand. And yeah. even then he looks pre- it looks pretty good. Yeah. Like, I can suspend disbelief enough that, like... I mean, I think it was, like, 94, so... Oh, 91. For 1991, the T-1000 liquid metal going through, going through like, fences and shit looks amazing. Yeah. Looks great. Yeah. Um, But, no, I just think that I enjoyed... I enjoyed Terminator 1 a lot more just because it had this beautiful little handmade small-scale feel to it that I found made it a lot easier to be emotionally invested in it. I think even if you look at the way that the film was constructed um, in terms of its plot, in the first film, it felt like there were really high stakes because you basically just had two random humans, uh, fucking Kyle 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 Reese and Sarah Connor, just two basically just normal humans that are up against this juggernaut Terminator that will stop at nothing. It's such a good idea. Simple premise, great execution. And so that, yeah, exactly. And so then you have to have, like, they have their wiles and their cunning and their, like, the advantage they have of their, like, their emotions and their human intelligence over this machine that's just ruthless and relentless and will just... Yeah, like a juggernaut thing. And so then in the second one, it's like, well, sure, it's cool that um, they've got Arnie on their side as in the Terminator on the other side. But then it just feels like, oh, it's just this, it's like one juggernaut versus another juggernaut. And the humans are just like these little side pieces. It's almost like one of those like escort missions in a video game where it's like, right. Yeah, well, but the but the one Terminator, the uh, Arnie is so inferior to this T one thousand that it always. I'm, I mean, maybe you didn't get this experience, but I felt the tension from always feeling like they were on the losing side well, because like he was always going to be like mathematically outsmarted by this T one thousand. Sure, but um, that the, those stakes and the always feels that they're outclassed are even better and even bigger and even. The, the disparity is even greater in, in the, first the first Terminator one. Right, right, right. Because I get what you mean. the second one, it's still like, well, yeah, he's still a Terminator and the Terminator, Arnie doesn't care if Arnie dies. 
Right. Right? Right. And the other Terminator doesn't care if the other Terminator dies. So it's almost like watching this fucking Transformers movie where it's just these two machines that don't have any emotional payoff with each other, like whacking against each other, not in like a disparaging kind of way, but just in a way where it's like, I just didn't feel like there was as much... Uh, like there was as much stakes against it because they literally yeah. say like no nah, Arnie's job is to protect you and he's going to stop at nothing he will he will walk into fucking a burning building to save this John Connor kid yeah um, he d- doesn't care for himself at all and it's like right well that almost sets up the fact that no matter what's happening to this kid um, Arnie will come out like a deus ex machina and save the day no matter what and then it's like, well, then at the same time, I enjoyed both movies. I'm just trying to look sure, at like why, sure, sure. what it is about the first movie that I enjoyed a lot more. And I think it's this construction like this where like, it's like, well, then, yeah, well, then I don't care. I'm not going to be really that worried about John Connor because the whole point of the movie is that he survives. But then the way in which he survives is through this Terminator. And I don't really care about that. And they do a good job of setting it up as this like father-son kind of relationship between the Terminator and the kid. Um I but think again, that's I the real like, emotional payoff of yeah, T2. But then again, I just felt like it was a lot better and a lot more effective in the first one. Where So it, another thing about the first one is because it doesn't have all these perfect digital, great, sophisticated effects, a lot of the way in which the movie is presented are unique and interesting ways of doing the scenes yeah. because of the challenges presented by the technologies they had. So Here's a hot take, not just the technology. The, the budget of the original Terminator film was yeah. six point four million dollars. Yeah, right. I don't know. I don't know what that what that translates to because of inflation and shit. But that's not that much. Maybe ten million yeah, or something. Right. The budget it, for T two was a hundred million dollars. Right, and you can see it. And so, like, it means that there's a lot of the time where, like, any of the cool old practical effects, the, the ways in which those might have challenged James Cameron in the first movie to come up with a different way of doing it. I'll use as an example. Um, they wanted to show the way in which after all the flat, all the human flesh and skin has been burnt from this Terminator, they wanted to show the metal exoskeleton just walking and chasing the characters. Right. And in the first movie, they, they thought like, right, well, the only way we're going to be able to do that is with an ex- is with stop motion. Yeah. So we're going to have to have scenes where we have this stop motion exoskeleton <laughs> yeah. chasing the humans. And it looks a bit fucked. And so they had to construct in the story, they're like, right, so we'll do it in this factory area here. Where it's, it's like strobing and, and we'll, fogging and, we'll, and shit. And we'll make the exoskeleton be damaged. So the exoskeleton has a damaged leg. And that's why he's walking funny. So he's walking funny mostly because the stop motion shit. Right. But within the movie, it's like, well, he's a damaged exoskeleton. So it feels like so that's it feels why he's like walking. It's justified. Right. Right, Whereas right. in the second one, you don't have... As many of those unique little challenges and things, it almost reminds me of the way in which um, it's always raining and dark in Jurassic Park because that's why that's how they made the dinosaur effects look yeah. good. But then that adds this extra element of mystery and suspense, and suspense to the whole yeah. thing that you don't get. If they had done a perfect dinosaur, they probably wouldn't have done that. If they right. had the, the ability to do perfect dinosaurs, and I think that's what and it then is. Then you've in the got Jurassic one. World. And yeah, T two exactly. So T two they can do perfect Terminators, and so they don't. They don't have this incentive to come up with interesting, challenging ways to do it. So there's this scene where in the in the first one, Arnie has to fix himself up in a hotel room. Mm. And they're clearly like cutting into models of heads and faces. <laughs> right, and right, right. But it's, re- it's filmed in a really interesting way because they have to film around the fact that they've got this prop. Yep. And I think that you just don't get that. And it's like fully practical effects. And yeah. Exactly. And you, and you just don't get that in T2. And I feel like I really felt it. And I feel like the handmade kind of quality to it made the first Terminator movie feel like this unique, classic piece of 80s cinema. Right. Whereas T2 felt like just another 
action movie that's almost like a bit too polished. Okay. If you know what I mean. I I don't know. I I also felt like there was too much going on in Terminator 2. We were talking off mic about the fact that um, we didn't like that second horror movie we talked about last week, The Howling 3, because there was too much going on and there was Howling all these different the scenes deals. and all these different balls in the air, whereas like the Razorback was just kill a pig on the loose and that was it. And so it's a lot more of a simple premise. And I think in the same way, there's so much shit going on in T2 that you've got, that you've got to keep track of as yeah. an audience member. There's like all of the Miles... What the fuck is his name? I don't the, know. Do- yeah, the scientist all, dude. All the technology and shit family. and all yeah. this stuff and all that stuff. And they're sort of justifying all their time travel bullshit. And it's fine and it works and it's sound. And it's a great time travel movie. These are some of the best time travel movies ever made, I reckon. Yeah. But... Um, I, it's just something. It, it's not me being like oh, I'm a dumb audience man, which just make it easy for me. But there is something I mean. about the idea of a simple plot and a simple premise that means that you can actually focus on getting the movie done yeah. in a way that you don't have to worry about juggling ten different storylines. And I think that the first one just feels a lot more grounded in that respect. Okay, they're not trying to do all this bullshit. I think that. Yeah, I don't know. That that's where I'm at. That's not my opinion. I liked. I mean, I I enjoy the elegant simplicity of the Terminator film, and I think for what it's doing, it does it very well. I really enjoyed the emotional arc that John Connor's character goes through, that Sarah Connor's character goes through in the first one. I think that the um the element of the bait and switch of Arnie being good in T2 is like something that's just lost to us. Yeah, well, that, um, I had that spoiled for me because it's like such a unique part of right, like pop culture, I guess, now. And so like I think knows. that is actually huge. I think that's extremely clever. And so like I give it a bit of credit for that. I think but so. then mostly the bonding between uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who, who like is such an inhuman thing in these films and um edward whatever his name is the boy who plays john connor Connor. yeah that's so sweet and those are my favorite parts of the film if i'm honest is the the interactions between john connor and arnie they were great i mean and that's what the heart of the film is right yeah um so yeah i think like for me i enjoy the i enjoy that it's got a lot more going on because it was kind of like showcasing like right well let's take this simple premise and let's actually still do something good with it it still has a cohesive script a bunch of interesting arcs that keep you engaged a complication that's not just like these people need to escape because i feel like in the first film the idea that like if you you need to live because you're like a prodigal son right so if you die humanity dies i think they established that yeah with Sarah Connor, so it's like if you die, you and don't have that kid. Yeah, or... right, and yeah, Kyle Reese. Um, so it's like you need to live, but really you're actually just running because you're afraid of dying. Whereas in the second one, it's like you need to live so that you can grow up and have this lived experience because you are very important, but it's not just like it's it's almost it, it's so embodied in John Connor this time. Yeah. So it's not just like this, you're running from a scary thing. It's like you have to learn how to live and how to grow up and how to become strong. So I thought that was a little a little more interesting. I like the T-1000 and I think that the guy that plays him does a really good job. He does do a great job. I, I Yeah, he does, also, a, he does a great job. Like, there are so many memorable parts of that film where like... It is a brilliant movie. Um, I think it's the best sequel I've ever seen. I'm not seen. arguing with what you've no, just no, said. I, I'm agreeing with you. I feel like just on the night when I watched it, when I watched them back to back, there was something about... 
Terminator 1 that really stood out as being different right, to me. Right, right. Whereas I feel like T2, over the years, I've seen so many more films that are a lot more like T2. But you're right. Comparing them as sequels, not to cut you off, but mm. I suppose I just did. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I, I have um, to give you. Yeah. It is really impressive the way in which they flesh out that world. It yeah. feels like an existing world. Maybe what I'm not appreciating is the fact that I don't think this is a- adapted from any book or comic or anything. No, it's a, James I think Cameron it's just a wrote it. Sort of a, yeah. And so it is kind idea. of amazing. In the first one, it's just like... I don't know if he wrote the first one. He definitely at least co-wrote it. Um, okay. It's definitely amazing that in the first one, it's almost just like an 80s monster movie where it's like, oh... Unbeatable robot is chasing these two dudes. Don't worry about it. Yeah, it was directed by James Cameron and written by and produced by Gail Ann Hurd and James Cameron. Yeah. yeah, right. And so then the second one, I guess it is definitely very impressive and I'm taking it for granted that it feels like he's fleshed out this whole universe mm. in a way in which I sort of... I, I'm just realising now that he wrote for that second movie. It's not like he's basing right. it on a huge amount of source material. Right? All like of it, that is unique. I, yeah. yeah. Like I, I feel like it'd be like if someone... It, yeah, if there was, if someone came out with like a whole Star Wars movie just based off like nothing, kind yeah. of thing, or yeah. it's like, oh, this is all coming out of nowhere, and it is really that is really impressive. Mm. So yeah, I don't know. I just I just feel like on the day. Well, they're both great. They're both great. They and like great we don't need to pick a winner, right? Um, I think they're both definitely. These are the two Terminator films worth watching. <laughs> um, well, it makes me curious about going to see T three. Did you end up going to watch T three? No, I didn't. <laughs> I, I I will see it. Um, because by all accounts, it's fine. Um, and yeah. it's the third best Terminator movie. I asked, I said to uh, Zach, friend of the show and previous guest, yeah. if T1 and T2 are like a finger with the part in terms of quality, in, in general, uh, you might disagree with this, but general consensus is like T2 is a bit better than T1. So if those two I things think are... Good for different reasons. Yeah. Right, sure. But uh, let's take like, yeah, sure, you yeah. know, scores on websites. So like <laughs> T2 sits a little bit above T1. Yeah. T3 is like maybe five fingers down from that (laughs) quality bar. Where does Dark Fate sit? And he said like probably the same distance from T2 to T1 from T1. So So about a finger's width under (laughs) T1. And I was like, right. So yeah, an extremely visual metaphor. So the finger width between... So does the film itself count as an entire finger width? No, the film itself is a line with... Thickness zero. Okay, right. So my question was going to be, if you've got T2 and then five finger widths and then T3. Yeah, five arbitrary and units. And d- does that mean that there are three finger widths no. between Dark Fate and T3? There are five. Or there are four? There are four T2. No, it means there are five. No, because you've got T2 and then a finger width. No, because hey, you got T2. the items on the list occupy zero space. Yeah, and right. thus, I can use objective and relativized metrics between yeah, them. Yeah, but you said between T3. There's bet- one. Between T2 and T3. Yeah. There are five fingers. Yes. Right. There's five units. Fingers. Sure. And then between T2 and Dark Fate, there's one finger. No, there's two. Two fingers. Because T2 is on I top. Thought you, I thought you said Zach said No, in the, the original T1. The original T1. So it's T2, one finger. T1, one finger. Dark Fate. Right. Four fingers. T3. That's, yeah, right. So four fingers. Gotcha. Yeah, but between T1 and T3, there's five, which is what I said initially. Okay, no, I'm with you. Yeah. I don't like this finger ranking system. It's confusing. I think no one likes this finger ranking system, and I'd say there are a lot of people maybe turning off this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's that's what I was at. I just wanted to share with you my hot take that I think that T1, better movie. T2 is one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, I have only watched T1 once. So, like, maybe I'd enjoy it more going back and watching it again. I but think it's worth going yeah. back in on. I yeah. think it was good fun. 
Yeah. In it an also awesome might be fun. way where you're like, here's the thing. I think T1, it's a feat of engineering that they even made the movie. Right. It it's is, a, yeah. It's, it's impressive. It's a little like Predator. It's yeah. impressive that they even pulled it off. I think it sits, I, I think those are the three, right? It's like Predator, Alien, and Terminator. Yeah, exactly. Are like the three great concept like, films. Yeah, right. And so I think my, I think maybe what was impressive about it is I was enthralled in the movie and the meta the meta game of the movie, which was they they made this right, right. But whereas for T two, I feel like it was like, oh, of course they can do this. Yeah, they and throw a hundred million dollars at it. Of course you can make right, it. Exactly. Right, exactly. Yeah, I get you. So I, I feel get like you. it was more impressive as like a challenge of filmmaking that they even pulled it off. And I was like, oh, the Madman, they did it. Same with like Alien and Aliens. It's like Aliens is a different movie. There are like fifty aliens, so it's yeah. not like it's not the same anymore. But it also probably had ten times the budget. Yeah. So it's like, well, yes, fine, you did a different thing, and yes, it's also. Is Aliens also directed by James Cameron? I've only... No, oh, I don't know. I've only ever seen the first one. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it, it matters to me. <laughs> right. Well, that's what I've got to say about... Terminator. It was Aliens was also directed by James Cameron. Well, there you go. Yeah. Dude, dude knows how to make a good movie. He knows how to make a good second movie. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to Avatar 2, baby! Ah, oh, fuck. Um, yeah. Right. So, that was, all, that, that was all I had on Terminator uh, and Terminator 2. I don't know if it's clear but that was our business or pleasure that kind of got lost in the post there with, yeah. with everything else Terminator I watched Punch Drunk Love whatever <laughs> whatever we, we, we ran to the lane that was our that was our Abbey Road baby we ran to the lane as one big piece <laughs> yeah. um, and we've we, we, we hate each other by this stage <laughs> um, right now this is this is a new segment can you think of a beef or meat related I pun? was trying to think of one man and I just can't quite Oh, we're going to do it then. Fuck it. No, right. <laughs> we'll Give it next next time. Okay. I'll come up. With we'll one. think of one. So this is off the. Or bat. listeners, if you can think of one, feel free to write let in. Us, let, let us know. know based on the concept we're about to tell you. Okay, right. So here's the idea. A couple weeks ago, now we did in the news uh, a segment about Disney Plus's announcement of all the films that are going to be on Disney Plus, yep. and they posted that three and a half hour long trailer that gave little snippets from like 600 different Disney movies, most of which it seemed were forgotten or straight to DVD or straight to VHS or Laserdisc or whatever. The point is, there were heaps of Disney movies on that list that didn't sound like real movies. Yeah. <laughs> like it was like The, the Lizard and the, and the Magician. Yeah. I was like, oh, come on, that's not a real fucking movie. Right. And so we thought, Andrew said, in jest... Much to his chagrin. <laughs> yeah. Ha ha. You could probably take any random movie off that Disney list and make up a movie and they will be indistinguishable. Right. A lot of them sounded like people were just making up movie titles on the spot. To which I said, you're on. Yeah. So yep. I think, now, what have you done now, Andrew? You've, you've picked one Disney movie from that list. Right. That's real. Yes. And you've now made up a fictional Disney movie. Yes. And I'm going to have to, would I lie I've, to I've you? I've made up a fictional Disney Plus title <laughs> and right. accompanying synopsis. Synopsis, right. So I'm going to have to, would I lie to you style, yeah. determine which of these movies is real. Yes. Okay. So am I going to be, am I, am I trying to pick holes in your little story here? Or are you just going to tell me about them and they're both going to be nuts? What's, what's the go? I... Have you got a cast? Yeah, I've got some, yeah. There are some details of both. Okay, although, right. like... Well, they'll be both equally unknown, won't they? Yes. Okay, right. Yeah, and the real one is not necessarily any easier to follow than the one that I might have generated. So, yeah. Okay, well, pre- present them to me as, as you best see fit. Okay. We'll see how we go. All right. So, the first title for today. <laughs> so, one of these is real and one of them you just made up. Yes. Okay, cool. Yeah. Let's go. So, the first, the first title is called 
Food Force 2, <laughs> all units scramble. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Already, if that's fake, you're a genius. Okay. So, <laughs> well, we'll fucking see, won't we? Okay, so... Now, this is Food Force 2, so I'm going to give you a tiny little bit of backstory that I had to look up from Food Force 1. Okay, so there's this... I'll try and do this 25 words or less because it's a mess. Yeah, right. They're both a mess. (laughs) So, there's this scientist dude called Dan who keeps, like, trying and failing to invent tech to sell to the military. (laughs) Okay. Uh, It's voiced by Olin Rogers, who uh, is doing a Netflix series at the moment. Um, called Final Space. Uh, so he finds this crashed alien ship. There's like this technology on board and he figures out how to use it. What it does is it brings food to life, right? So it like right. imbues food with a consciousness okay. somehow. <laughs> okay. This is never explained. Do, do, have you, do they have faces and eyes? Yeah, or? yeah, yeah. So they're anthropomorphized. Is this animated and they grow or is like, this live It's action? animated, sorry. Both of these are animated. Okay. They grow like legs and stuff and they have like a face... Um, it's very Aquatine Hunger Force, right. if you know. So, like, similarly I'm f- to vaguely how... Vaguely familiar with I don't think they have limbs in that, but it's like that. Okay, right. So, like, um, the bottom line of the first one is that the aliens show up, they want their tech back, uh, and the scientist guy has to team up with all this food that he's animated. So, there's, like, a <laughs> carrot, lettuce, uh, steak, who's named Dwayne, <laughs> which is Fuck great. Yeah. That's great. And, a, like, a soda cup, um... Which I feel either influenced Aquatine Hunger Force or is like a ripoff. I'm not sure when. So this came out in 2006, straight to DVD. 2006. Yes. Fuck. So uh, that is that is the food force. Okay, that's the first one. Is how like many? So how many things are there in the food force? A steak, a cup, so carrot, steak, carrot. lettuce, and a soda. And the scientist Dan. What are the names right? of all the food force items? Have you got that? No, I don't. I didn't look it up. Okay, right. Uh, wait, wait. So food force. Yeah. Two. This so this is now okay so now that's the so that they fight they stave off the aliens that's okay. Food Force one the second film Food Force two all units scramble <laughs> is uh like a few I think like fifteen years later or something the scientist works for the military now so he's like achieved his goal from the first film yeah and he runs this lab I think and there's this. Uh, he he has in the first film he had this uh, pet chicken called Professor Cluckles, <laughs> and the chicken lays eggs, and so he's just over time like anthropomorphized five of these eggs over time over, over a week. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess I don't know. So there, anyway, the point is the five eggs are the five kind of main characters, and because he works for the military, they're also all spaceship pilots. Sorry, right. Because he all works the, for the military, all, all the, the eggs, eggs are spaceship, are spaceship pilots. pilots. Are little mini He's spaceships? He's built mech suits for them, so he puts the eggs into like well, mech suits. My first criticism was going to be, right, well, if you had How does egg. an egg fly a plane, right? <laughs> yeah. I also thought that. So, <laughs> well, no, I thought like, well, eggs are breakable. Why wouldn't right. you... Why so he has to like put them in the suits. So he's like built these, yeah, these like articulating mech suits for them. So he puts them in there and then they get into the plane and fly. Right, so they it, it, the the aliens from the first movie are like warring with Earth, right? And they have this base on Mars. So the opening <laughs> of the first one is that the aliens make another run on the planet on the military base where this scientist dude is, 
and the eggs kind of like scramble and they all jump in their fucking planes <laughs> and one of them gets quote egg napped <laughs> um <laughs> yeah so the um one of the eggs the the egg that's egg napped is called chip and is oh, vo- which is yeah, yep, right, okay, crazy yeah, right. and is voiced by Kieran Culkin actually of all people so the from there it's like they it's a pretty standard um like rescue plot where the four other eggs have to fly on the Mars base and try and rescue Chip in order to like get him back and I don't know blow the base up um, so it's like a so, Star Wars Death Star. Really. Right. But they're approaching, but with a rescue mission in it as well. So they're like approaching the thing and they get shot at and they get split into like two parties of two eggs each in their little mech suits. The only way you can tell them apart. Do the mechs fly as well then or what? No, like, no, no, no. So they, they get shot at and they get split up and they land on Mars. Right. And so, but like because they were being shot at, they had to like land in two okay. different places, I think. Right. Yeah, the only way you can tell these eggs apart is that they have different hair <laughs> and different voice actors. And, and why so are, they, are these big? I don't or know why the eggs have tiny? hair. Why the egg, what, How does the scale of this whole thing work? No, so the mech suits are the size of humans, I think. With from tiny the trailer. Eggs in them. Yeah, so he like puts the eggs, and it's like you know, Krang from the <laughs> Kronk. No, Krang from um, Ninja Turtles. No, or the dude. No, sh- is it Shredder that's got the the rat thing? That's Master Shredder. No, sorry. The guy that's the brain floating in the suit. No. It's like that. Okay, there's a brain floating in a suit. And so they're like immersed in like a thing of liquid in, right. in this suit. Okay. Right. Okay, sure. Yeah. Fine. Fine. So, so they're, they're people-sized mechs. They're people-sized mechs and they're people-sized space plane things. Okay. I said these were both messes, right? Okay, right. From what I understand, because I watched the trailer and I read through the plot, but it was pretty thin. <laughs> so they they get shot down or they're like, they have to land and they split up into two groups. They end up like regrouping and rescuing Chip and then setting a self-destruct timer for the base. And then like... The mag timer? <laughs> well, that's a missed opportunity. The rest not. of the movie seems like to be entirely an excuse for like egg-related puns. <laughs> I think because like <laughs> like a team of writers on their lunch break, yeah. started writing egg puns. It started to drift into company time, and they're like, "Fuck it, let's just finish this movie." Right. So like one of the when they were doing like the training run at the start, these are both in the trailer. When they're doing the training run at the start, one of them's like, "Oh," they do like a barrel roll thing, and they're like, "Oh, I'm in a yoke." Which I think is like an American word for throwing up. Okay. And then uh, one of them is like torturing Chip, the Kieran Culkin egg, and he's like, um, eventually you'll crack. And the whole film <laughs> just seems like... Like how that Batman movie was probably just invented so they could get Arnie going like, I still meet you. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's the premise. And I think they, I don't know, I guess they all win out in the end. Okay. Uh, from what so I can tell, they're like, regroup, make it back, and yeah, so happily what, ever what after. So what was the name of that movie? Food Force 2, all units scramble. And so is there any reference to the original Food Force in this? Yeah, sorry. So the rest of the Food Force, uh, the the military is like, he the scientist dude is like running this operation where he just makes food as like soldiers. 
Right. Right. So like there are like carrot pilots and lettuce pilots. So the pilots. original food force is just like cogs in the machine. Yeah. 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 So the military has like operationalized it completely. Right. So I don't know why it seems to just focus on these eggs i'm guessing because not a whole lot of budget was thrown at this movie right and the less that they could involve any of the other fucking having animate multiple characters or whatever okay the better but yeah i don't know so that's food force to so what all what, units scramble what's the animation style of this is it like 3d animation it reminded like me a lot of um the mighty ducks right like if you ever saw the mighty ducks animated series it, it's almost like an anime kind of thing um, like it's would you call that flat. anime? I don't remember the Mighty Ducks. Well, or like, yeah, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Right. Like a lot of look. It looks like the two D. The flat. premise was a lot. I I I was like, oh, this is kind of like Powerpuff Girls. That like the scientist like mixes the shit into okay, the cauldron, yeah. and it's sort of like then there are people. Right. But the animation style is like much more similar to. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what the what the difference. It's just a lot less stylized and a lot more like bland like comic bookish yeah, type okay. things well the, the so same they're like sort of across between like Pocahontas and Milan and that kind of shit right yeah, yeah right. across between like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Transformers with the mech suits and the, the space locations okay. and shit okay alright so the other film is Phineas and Ferb the movie <laughs> Across the Second Dimension okay 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 fine yeah right go. So Phineas and Ferb are like, they're stepbrothers, right? And they're involved in this accident where they're, uh, they invent this giant shuttlecock because they're playing giant badminton. Right. And so that like crashes through into the, the laboratory of this. Sorry, the, the giant shuttlecock. They're playing giant badminton. Right. Yep. And there's this accident where the giant badminton thing flies off and it crashes into the lab of this Dr. Doofenshmirtz. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, didn't have time to write that name, did you? (laughs) Might be I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And they destroy his other dimension innator. Right. Which creates portals... To other dimensions. <laughs> so they they help him rebuild the machine. Doctor, uh, Dr. what did I say? Doofenshmirtz. Doofenshmirtz. Yeah, right. Cool. Yeah. Well, you just read it off. Read it off the. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. I'll do that next time. Doctor Doof. Let me just. <laughs> so they help him rebuild the machine, and um, their pet platypus. <laughs> whose name is Perry it's really just like you're making up on the spot <laughs> is also a spy <laughs> so it's a spy platypus named Perry and he's uh, so he poses as their pet but he's actually a spy right so he shows right. up wait and sorry so he's, a, he's like a double agent yeah right uh, I don't know why he also has to pose as their pet it feels like it well, otherwise, there's going to be a fucking platypus lying around, isn't there? Yep. So that maybe didn't get thought through. Um, Makes so sense to me. He shows up to try and stop them from fixing the machine before they do. 
but platypus. he's like, oh, I know the platypus can talk. No, so that's the thing. He can't. He doesn't want to like reveal that he's also a spy, and so he stays in like animal form, I guess, or like he doesn't show his true self. Right. And they, he doesn't stop them from fixing the machine. So then they, uh, they all get sort of sucked into this portal and like travel to this alternate dimension where there's an evil version of Dr. Doofenshmirtz. <laughs> and he is like ruling over the same society as they're in with this army of evil robots, right? So and Phineas and Ferb are like scientists or something? No, Phineas and Ferb are just kids. So right. they crash through the lab and Dr. Doofen... They break his like portal machine. Okay, right. And so they help him repair it. Okay. And when they help him repair it, I don't know, something goes wrong, I think, and they get sucked they into this the evil dimension. alternate okay, dimension. Gotcha. Right. So, um, in that evil dimension, there's the evil Dr. Doofenshmirtz, and he has uh, created like an evil version of Perry, the platypus, <laughs> who's known as Platyborg. <laughs> like cyborg and platypus put together, right? Okay. <laughs> no, yeah, no, yeah, so, <laughs> just in case you didn't. Okay, so they've got the the remote thing that you use to make the portals, um, but yeah, they the can't. World but they can't uh, other dimension in Ada. Yeah, right. But they can't use it to get back to their own dimension. Right. It's not clear why. Okay, this is fucking crazy, and I'm like ninety percent sure this is. Here's the problem. This sounds... I, I, I'm assuming that this might be the real one, but it sounds fucking crazy. But if this is wrong, then that means that fucking food one's real. But then if this is... Tr- but then if this is the real one, then you just made up that food one, in which case you're a sociopath. That was insane, that food one. All right, sorry, keep going. So they have this portal thing. So there's this portal thing... At this point, either I think either, either could be equally genius. likely. So there's this, <laughs> <laughs> there's this food thing. Sorry, this portal thing <laughs> threw me off with the food thing. <laughs> there's this, yeah. So they um, do the evil version of Doofenshmirtz captures them, and um, he finds out that they've come from like an alternative dimension where he doesn't rule, and so he's like, "I don't like that. I'm going to rule there as well." Pity my uh, other dimensionator is broken. <laughs> um, and then uh, he traps Perry. Well, he's already got them trapped, but uh, Phineas and Ferb try to escape. They're successful, but Perry gets caught. So the platypus from their dimension, the spy platypus, right. gets caught. Phineas and Ferb escape. Who's, pl- who's the platypus a spy for? Uh, it's this agency, um, called like, uh, AWACS, <laughs> I think, but I can't remember what okay, right. it stands for. Unrelated. Yeah. Okay, right. Yeah, I mean, maybe it has something to do with Doofenshmirtz, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, this has got Doofenshmirtz fingerprints <laughs> all, all over, it. over it. Um, okay, so, yeah, Perry's trapped, Phineas and Ferb are out in this other dimension. And, like, because there's a version of Doofenshmirtz that's the same, there's a version of everyone. And they end up meeting up with a bunch of their friends from the real dimension, or from their dimension, who are, like, part of this resistance force, who are, like, anti 
Doofenshmirtz establishment and they're like, yeah, I don't know what the end goal is. They're like, oh, we're a resistance group. And um, so he meets up with those people. Meanwhile, uh, evil Doofenshmirtz learns that the original crew knows how to fix his machine. And he's like, okay, well, I need to invade their original dimension. So I got to find those people, get them back here, fix my machine, then I'm going to go invade. And meanwhile, meanwhile... Fuck me. Right. One of their other mates from their dimension comes through and um, she, like, teams up with them and the three of them go back in and with some of the, like, resistance group, go back in and try to rescue the platypus spy. Right. But they're all captured again. Okay. And then <laughs> he's like... All right, I'm going to feed you to my giant space worm monster <laughs> called Guzim. <laughs> um, Fuck. I don't, know, so what I about hate, to I don't know what I hate more. You coming up with these names at the last minute or some <laughs> Disney dude is being paid to come up with these names. So just <laughs> settling for Platterborg and Guzim. Well, we'll see how, <laughs> see how it all falls out. Either way... This society is despicable. So you are either directly or not directly <laughs> responsible. So they, um, so they're captured again, and then they escape again, and they regroup with the vigilantes. But he managed to figure out how to fix his machine, and so they all jump back into the portal and like go back to the original dimension. Okay. And he's a the evil Doofenstein, uh, Doofenshmirtz. Is about to unleash his robots on the world. He's like he's got like an army of robots. Did I mention that? No. He's got an army of robots. That's how he ruled the second dimension. And so like he right. he brings his like army through. It's like Attack of the Clones, and um, then uh, he's yeah he's about to like press the button and like have them all be unleashed. But the final thing that happens is that the original Doofenshmirtz comes up. And um, is like, wait, stop. And he gives the uh, evil Doofenshmirtz uh, a toy train that the evil Doofenshmirtz lost when he was little, which was the thing that like was the catalyst for him becoming jaded and evil. And <laughs> do- the evil Doofenshmirtz is like, oh, actually, I'm happy now. And he's like, okay, fine. I'll just go back. And well, so he like, goes back style. in his... yeah. What in what way? Well, the evil restaurant critic just like tastes. Oh, it like takes him back to his nostalgia. Not evil anymore. Right. Yeah. And so he like takes all his forces back through the portal and goes home. And that's it. And yeah, then then like pretty much everyone lives happily ever after. Um. Yeah. Right. Yep. (laughs) Any questions? (laughs) (laughs) No, I think it's pretty clear what's happening here. (laughs) Okay. So when did when did the the Phineas and Ferb movie come out? Two thousand and eleven, right? And so that's what a streaming movie or a DVD, a DVD, um, a DVD type thing. What would it have been? Two thousand and eleven. Yeah, right. I guess probably DVD. Okay. Yeah. What? Right. And is it is it? Re- you don't know if it's related to the rest of the TV series. 
I mean, I think it uses a bunch of the characters. Like, I think... Um, I would assume that the fact that uh, Perry, the platypus spy, is a spy is established in the series. Okay. But I've never seen... You've never, you, you, didn't, you didn't bother to watch three seasons worth of... Uh, no, just like research. I didn't bother to watch Food Force 1. <laughs> <laughs> I also didn't bother to watch Phineas and Ferb, the TV hmm. series. Before. So if, is there, are there trailers for both of these movies yeah. online? That's how I... So I got my information from... I should I should have led with this. I got my information from the trailer for both and the Wikipedia article for both. Fuck, I hope that Food Force movie is real. Okay. Um... Look, here's my problem. Here's my problem. <laughs> There's like a tr- double or triple bluff going on here where like on the one hand, maybe you're just like deliberately, vaguely reading out the Phineas and Ferb plot to throw me off to make it sound like you half-assed writing the fake. So here's the So maybe the Phineas and Ferb one is fake and you really half-assed it. And you were just like, <laughs> oh, it's platypus, and it's goosim. Wait, you're not really buying the concept of a spy platypus? <laughs> right, and so there's that as well. Um, I'm not quite clear on whether the platypus is anthropomorphic or not. Like, fuck. Uh, on the other hand, yeah, and so maybe, maybe you're just half-assing <laughs> that, and then you really, in detail, and you, you really researched Food Force, <laughs> and you're all across Food Force. On the other hand, I think it's equally likely that you put a lot of care and attention into writing Food Force 2. I will tell you this. backstory by writing Food Force 1, and then didn't bother to actually find a real movie. I'll tell you this. (laughs) I, uh, so we're recording this at 9. I got to your house at 6.45, roughly. Regardless of which one I started thinking of the idea of, I had zero concept before 5 p.m. today. <laughs> so it was like the car trip home. So did I reuse existing characters? Did I come up with other stuff? God, I, I really... Look, my instinct... I, I don't, I don't want to just trip up because you... I, I feel like you got fucked because I knew who Phineas and Ferb were. I think my instinct... Is that the Phineas and Ferb movie is real and that Food Force was made up. But Yeah. Do you think Okay. Do you yep. No. I don't, I don't know how this ends in a satisfying way. Because either <laughs> either either way, you just have to be like, yeah. Or like, no, it was the other one. And I'll be like, oh, cool. <laughs> we gotta work out a good way of ending this. So right, so that You just gotta pick one. And Pick whether or not I'm double, single, or triple, or quadruple <sighs> bluffing you. Yeah, right. So then, no, I don't. I, I think Phineas and Ferb is real, but fuck. But if that if Phineas and Ferb is real, that's so terrible. Platy Borg and Doctor <laughs> Doofenshmirtz, and like that sounds like they can. That sounds you, like they you had might to write be, it. <laughs> you might be insulting me here. That. <laughs> Here's the thing, Dr. Doofenshmirtz and Platty Borg sounds like they wrote it in an hour. So if you wrote it in an hour, that's great. And I'm very impressed <laughs> right. because it sounds like a, a third rate Makes Disney movie. Makes you feel movie. a bit better. <laughs> that's my problem. The f- it sounds like a third rate movie. 
And so if you wrote it in an hour, <laughs> we're fine. But if that's a movie that Disney threw hundreds of thousands of dollars <laughs> and potentially months of man hours at. Yeah. I didn't check what either of the budgets were for these. But I'm upset. <laughs> um, yeah, no, right. So if... Go with your... Yep, I don't I'm, I'm going to say Food Force is is fake. Food Force is... A, food is, Force is fake. Is, is one that you wrote. All right. And I think that the Phineas and Ferb movie... Gotta be real. So you think that I wouldn't have checked like the popularity of a TV, a cartoon TV series that we watched when we were kids? I, I don't think. Be like me relying on you not knowing what Kim Possible was. I think you're relying on me not knowing who Phineas and Ferb okay. were, and I think you fucked it. All right. Well then, I don't. I don't. He's no. I don't think it, it's the hippie hipster in me. I don't think you know who Phineas and Ferb are. I know who all of these characters are. You did work in childcare. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm trusting my instinct. Food force is re- food force is fake. Food Finis force is fake. Finis and Feb is real. How'd I do? Okay, that is correct. <laughs> I did it! Boom. So, all right, but I'm glad it was as kind of like close as you thought. Yeah. <sighs> They're but Phineas and that's so Phineas and Ferb was the real dude, one. I that's terrible. Okay, I needed to, the <laughs> the thing I was working on so hard was cutting down the plot of Phineas and Ferb <laughs> so it would match my description because <laughs> that movie is bloated as hell, man. I'm gonna I'll finish this episode with a text to speech reading of <laughs> the plot of Phineas and Ferb. That's why it looks like this episode goes for three and a half Across the second dimension. Because, like, that's how I was... On the way over, I was listening to the text-to-speech of the Wikipedia plot over and over again to try and be able to... Would I lie to you for it? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm going to put it in the description because, like, I was, like, the first and second time through, I was like, what the fuck is happening in this (laughs) fucking movie? They get, like, caught and escape and caught and escape and caught and escape <laughs> so many times at the end they i left this out because i felt like it would seal a deal because it's like there's no way you can make this up they get they need to not know that the platypus spy is a spy so they fucking men in black memory flash them right so that they don't know anymore that he's a spy and he can keep <laughs> being their pet platypus it's so that they can just completely make the movie have been it's inconsequential. It's so weird, man. Yeah, that that script is a mess. That's insane. Yeah. I'm genuinely very upset that you wrote a better fake Disney movie <laughs> in an hour the first, than they wrote in The months. first a- a Food Force doesn't exist either. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah no, I see it. Yeah, you, okay, yeah. good. All right. Because you were like, yeah, you must have researched Food Force. I didn't research it. I wrote it. <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah. Food Force is great, man. I'd watch Food Force. Yeah, it sounded like an interesting Also, idea. I know you've got a hard-on for mechs. So, I feel like... No, that came from me thinking, like, why would an egg be a pilot? And would they be tiny ships? And then I was like, no, he puts them in a mech suit so that they're fine. That rocks. Yeah. Oh well, well done, well done. Thank you. And that's 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 absurd that you wrote a better movie than Disney did. <laughs> well, we don't know, but yeah, you got to work for straight to VHS Disney boy. <laughs> yeah. We got to flash you back. I in said time. it before, and I'll say it again. Both of us could have been like multimillionaires in the eighties, nineties. If we'd been born in that like <laughs> little window. era where fucking anyone with a where brain could... could do anything that they wanted, <laughs> it would have been awesome. <laughs> We're stuck with like normal jobs, oh, but well. yeah. Oh, well, yeah. well done. 
I thoroughly enjoyed that. Good. If you come up with a dumb meat related, we need a meat related pun. Yeah. So send those in. Some like faux meat. Faux meat. Yeah. Beyond. Oh, no, there's some. Look, there's something there. Yeah. There's something there. It's on the tip of my tongue, if you will. Mm. The tip of my fake tongue that's made <laughs> of meat. How's that? Made of fake meat. If you have any ideas for us or any other suggestions for the show, email in beefstationpod at gmail.com. Uh, us doing the Myrowitz stories this week was partly in thanks to friend of the show and previous guest, Pat. Yeah. Who thought we should check it out. Uh, Terminator was our own suggestion. Get off our backs. We have our own ideas. <laughs> Fuck you. We're allowed to do what uh, we want sometimes. <laughs> jump in You're not the out. boss of us. <laughs> you know my mom or my dad. As evidenced by the fact that we spent the last 20 minutes making shit up. Yeah. <laughs> um, now that was one of the most highly produced bits we've had in a while. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. Um, uh, All right. Uh, yeah, jump in on our Facebook discussion page. It's that's dying a little. I like a crisis in the car on the way where I was like, I was like too deep into the idea to come up with another one, but I was like, eggs as pilots. What the <laughs> fuck are you doing? I, I cannot, I cannot help but assume that the people writing Phineas and Ferb had the same crisis. <laughs> Maybe four or five more times than I had. You, you feel like you've got like an emotional an emotional link to the yeah. Phineas and Ferb writers. Oh yeah, you gotta find out what the fuck the writers of the Phineas and Ferb movie would do. Oh, God, oh, fuck. No, we, I was wrapping up. Sorry. Email us beefstationpod@gmail.com. Come join our Facebook page or like us on Facebook. We've got all the links in the description of this week's episode. Next week we are doing Jojo Rabbit. There's a uh, yes. there's a. Ex, ex, there's a Screening of Jojo Rabbit. <laughs> There's a snake in my boot. Uh, the weekend coming up, just before we're recording this, which is probably going to be have gone by the time that this episode comes out. But in any case, we're doing Jojo Rabbit. So we're going to have to present it in a way that doesn't spoil the movie at all, but we'll let you know how we go. We'll come up with some more bullshit to <laughs> pad some time next week. Yep. Thank you for joining us for another week. I'm Oscar. I'm credited Disney writer Andrew. <laughs> See you later. To celebrate the fifth anniversary of Perry becoming their pet, Phineas and Ferb created gigantic shuttlecock in order to play giant badminton. When Perry's hovercraft accidentally collides with their shuttlecock, the boys crash into Dr. Doofenshmirtz's lab and destroy his other dimension and nature, which creates portals to parallel dimensions. Intrigued, the two help Doofenshmirtz rebuild the machine. Perry arrives to stop Doofenshmirtz but unwilling to reveal his secret identity to the boys. Reverts to pet mode and is unable to prevent him from helping do Fenchmites. The group travels to an alternate dimension where an evil do Fenchmites rules the tri-state area with his army of norm bots. 
The second Perry, known as Platterborg, was converted into an evil cyborg by Doofenshmrtz2 and programmed to serve as his second in command. Doof2 orders Platterborg to attack the boys, forcing Perry to reveal his secret identity to the boys' surprise. Perry and the boys escape, but Phineas is angry with Perry for his long-term deception. With their remote opening a portal for other dimensions but not their home, the boys seek out their alternate selves, who have grown up without knowing about Summer. Doofenshmirtz2 decides to use the other dimension donator to invade the original tri-state area. In order to keep Perry off the track, Doof2 announces he will spare Phineas and Ferb if Perry surrenders. Perry agrees to the deal, but before he leaves is told by an upset Phineas that he is no longer him and Ferb's pet. When Doofenshmirtz2 learns that only the boys can fix the other dimension and later, he reneges on the deal. Phineas and Ferb ask the alternate Isabella for help and find that she and alternate versions of Baljeet, Buford and the Fireside Girls are part of the resistance movement. Led by the alternate Candace, B-A-L-J-E-E-T-2 is able to open the portal to the original dimension, but upon learning about Perry's capture, Phineas and Ferb decide to rescue Perry before they can leave. In the original dimension, Candace spots the portal and jumps through, causing it to close. The kids set off to rescue Perry, but are trapped by Doofenshmirtz2 and his forces. They escape with Perry when he provides a distraction, but during the chase, Platterborg disables one of the minecarts, slowing them down. Unwilling to endanger her brothers, Candace 2 abandons Phineas, Ferb, Candace 1 and Perry. The boys refuse to fix the machine, but inadvertently remind Doofenshmites how they fixed his machine by removing the self-destruct button. After Doofenshmites powers up the machine, Doofenshmirtz2 orders Phineas, Ferb, Candace and Perry to be fed to a gigantic monster called the Guzum, when Doofenshmites annoys him again. Doofenshmirtz2 orders him to be fed as well. Before the five can be eaten, Candace 2 rescues them and gives them the remote, allowing Phineas, Ferb, Candace, Perry and Doofenshmites to travel through other dimensions until they reach their home dimension. Despite this, Candace 2 is captured by the Normbots. Doofenshmirtz2 arrives at their dimension and releases the Normbots into Danville. Perry gives Phineas and Ferb the locket off his collar, which leads them to Perry's lair. Inside, they find replicas of all their previous inventions. With the help of their friends, the children of Danville, and the OWCA agents, Phineas and Ferb use the inventions to defeat the Normbots. While Candace 2 is freed by Phineas 2, Ferb 2, and Jeremy 2, and Perry defeats Platterborg. Before Doofenshmirtz2 can destroy Perry, Phineas and Ferb with a large robot version of himself. 
Do Fenchmites arrives and gives D-L-O-F-E-N-S-H-M-I-R-T-Z to a toy train that he lost when he was a kid, which was the sole reason he turned evil. His tragic backstory resolved. D-O-O-F-E-N-S-H-M-I-R-T-Z-2 self-destructs his normbots and returns to his own dimension, only to be arrested. Several characters from the other dimension arrive in the original dimension to thank their counterparts for saving the day. Platterborg, freed from his evil programming, reverts to his normal self as a result of which Phineas II and Ferb II forgive and take him home. The group are initially distraught to learn that Perry will be relocated since his cover is blown. But at the nick of time Carl remembers Doofenshmites has an amnesia-inator that can erase memories with this realization. Phineas, Ferb, Candace and their friends have their memories erased, allowing them to keep Perry permanently. Before they all forget what happened, Phineas and Ferb say their goodbyes to Perry while Isabella seizes the opportunity to kiss Phineas. Later, Perry enters his lair and uploads photos from the day onto his computer, smiling happily.